How do you do? The Box Office Pulp Board feels it would be a little unkind to present this podcast without just a word of friendly warning. We're about to unfold a cinematic commentary track, made by a group of men who sought to create a podcast after their own ravings, without reckoning upon God. It is one of the strangest tales ever told. It deals with three great mysteries of the internet, analysis, observation, and deconstruction. I think it will thrill you. It may shock you. It might even horrify you. So if any of you feel you'd not care to subject your nerves to such a strain, now's your chance to... Well, we've warned you. Now, to pause and refresh. For your convenience, we have an attractive refreshment stand in the lobby, with buttered popcorn, golden good and hot from the popper, your favorite candies, wholesome and rich, plus delicious Dr. Pepper, so bright and bracing with a tang and tingle unmatched by any other beverage. Enjoy an ice-cold Dr. Pepper at our beverage stand right now, and then return to fully appreciate this bop and a movie commentary track. Enjoy. I don't know anything about such things, and if I did, I wouldn't tell you. Now get out of here at once, and don't let me ever catch a mentally it again! Confused? I'd be surprised if you weren't. Well, I don't understand. What happened? This is perhaps the most important memory I've collected. It is also a lie. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Box Office Pulp, your one-stop podcast for movies, madness, moxie, and tonight, memory palaces. The Bop Harry Potter commentary series goes into year six of the Hogwarts life with this episode about Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. I'm your host, Cody, and joining me today via the muggle... I was doing pretty good. Via the muggle magic of technology are my co-host, Mike. Say hello, Mike. I'm upset now because you you got a tongue twister there. Do you do you want go? Oh, you say it. Oh, now you've got me in a corner. Go ahead. You you, you do the tongue twister. No, it's good. I no, you did a good job. Muggle maggot magic. No, it's hard. Muggle, Muggle maggots. Oh, that sounds like a candy. Muggle maggots. Come on down. Get your Muggle maggots. Your kids will love them. Why did Beetlejuice show up in Harry Potter for a moment there? Cody, as Beetlejuice say, you don't do two shows on Sunday anymore. I don't do two shows on Sunday anymore. Murder on the voice. That's just a monster truck rally guy. I can't do Beetlejuice. (laughs) That's an accurate description of that voice, though. Sunday, Sunday, (laughs) and watch Harry Potter with Mike, Cody, and our other co-host, Jamie. Also, I just want to say I am getting a wizard life tattooed onto my chest later so i'm glad you foreshadowed that legit <laughs> all right let's uh instead of sitting here listening to me do monster truck rally voices all day let's hop right into things we got a longer movie this time to get through so before i explain to you how commentaries work for the sixth time we're gonna go into the official drink are you ready this one's nice and simple it's the dark and stormy a classic drink you probably had before three ingredients two ounces dark rum five ounces ginger beer and a lime wedge Nothing to it. Instructions, get yourself a uh, tall glass, or put some ice in the glass, pour the rum over the ice, add the ginger beer, squeeze a lime into the drink, and 
you're there. That's a dark and stormy. Now, that pick might seem a little counterintuitive considering, you know, this movie takes its title from Snape being an alchemy potion master. And instead of doing anything fancy here, we're just dumping three ingredients into a glass. I can see why this is a little bit underselling that concept. And even if you look at the movie, we have a really full story. Draco has his own subplot. Dumbledore is after his own mysterious ends. Harry is dealing with school, love, luck, Dumbledore schemes. There's love stories left and right, characters weeping we don't really care about. It seems like a lot is going on. And a complex drink would stand a reason would fit that. Instead, though, I went with a classic. Simple cocktail. And that has to do more with the look of the film, which is dark, gloomy. You've got rain and snow almost every single time we see the outdoors. When I think of this Harry Potter film, I think dark and stormy. So why not have a drink with the same name? Also, I didn't have to buy any new materials, and that was awesome. Also, I think it's just fun to say dark and stormy. Dark and and it's not and. It's dark apostrophe n apostrophe stormy. <laughs> oh, that's even better. That's, that's like that's how we official... uh, title bop in a movie. Yeah. Little uh, accidental symmetry there. I like it. <laughs> also, <laughs> I planned this all along. Drunken symmetry. Also, also, if you have a guest over that you're not too familiar with, do not open with, would you like me to give you a dark and stormy? Uh, that <laughs> evening is going to end abruptly. Or not, depending on the person. Maybe they're into a dark and stormy. I like this litmus test. <laughs> I feel like it's like a rusty venture. Everyone has their own idea of what it is in their head. I was thinking it was like sex dice, where you just roll them and like two different actions pop up. Oh, it's like anytime um, I meet somebody new, I just uh, laugh one of their jokes and then get very serious and go, would you like to see my collection? (laughs) (laughs) You just look them straight in the eyes. I have no pity. (laughs) (laughs) Give me a banana or monkeys for your enjoyment. We do laugh enough to be considered monkeys. Mirthful monkey laughter. We finally got our first review, so... <laughs> Boy, we're high on that critique. <laughs> I'm, I'm excited, personally. We have our first troll. We made it. We made it in the industry. I've been saying it for years. You're not somebody till people hate you. And it was one of those nice trolls, too, which are my favorite. Like, big fan, big fan. I do wish you were more attractive. Big fan. <laughs> I, can you just be a different type of human being? Sure, Dad. That's. I feel like that's the life equivalent of a studio saying, we really like what this script could be. But what if it was Green Lantern 2? And Black Adam appears sooner. Oh, well, always the answer to that is yes. Anyways, folks, before we wallow in our self-pity too much longer, let's runs. get into the rules of a commentary in case this is, for some <laughs> reason, your first one. The rules of a commentary. They're simple. It's, it's not like Fight Club where you can't talk about it. Go ahead. I encourage you to talk about it with your friends and tell them to also listen. Uh, we're going to watch the movie. We're going to watch Half-Blood Prince. I encourage you to watch it with us. We're going to have a countdown. When we hit the end of the countdown, we start the movie, we start the commentary. You can watch along and listen. Or not. Your call, your life. You do as you please. Anyways, Mike, if you want to do the honors. All right. One, two, three. Hooray! It's that old familiar fucked up WB logo. I was about to say, but which, which studio is it? I can't see. I wish the Harry Potter movies had gone on for like another eight movies just to see the WB logo get worse and worse till it's like the, the stick men from Blair Witch Project at some point <laughs> spelling WB and there's blood on the screen. Just the ruins of Wayne Manor. <laughs>
I don't want to say, first of all, I actually really fucking love this cold open. It's a little strange because it's a flashback compared to the other ones where we have kind of information that doesn't necessarily relate directly to Harry Potter, but on the story. And it's one of the, it kind of breaks the streak of it opening like a horror film. Yeah. But this is the one that feels like it follows so directly close to the events of the last one in a way the other ones didn't, where it feels appropriate to open that way. Yeah, the pace kind of picks up from here in terms of, like, the slack between movies. So we get that flashback to the exact end of the last movie. This one ends, and, hell, Deathly Hallows 1, doesn't it pick up with, uh, like, the immediate aftermath of Dumbledore's death? I don't think there's a lot of time between the movies anymore. No, almost not at all. It does open in the summer, yeah, with with the wedding. And I also just love how it hammers home the two big things that are going to carry the rest of the series forward. Harry's shell shock at the amount of shit he's had to deal with at this point, and just the relationship between Harry and Dumbledore, that is a surrogate father figure that's about to be snatched from him, just like everybody else in his life. Yeah, you need that, the symmetry of that and the, kind of the, the setting of it. Especially since this is your two movies in a row that end with uh, Harry's family essentially being murderers. <laughs> so. Voldemort didn't lie. He will lose everything. <laughs> we'll say, though, this opening does bother me for the fact that it kind of goes against some of the rules established by J.K. Rowling. To be a giant book nerd about it, we have evil wizards who just turn invisible and they're flying. That's pretty OP by Harry Potter wizard standards. I mean, that's why Harry Potter has the invisibility cloak, and it's one of the major Deathly Hollow things. Turning completely invisible on the fly seems like something I don't think they should be able to do. And flying was supposed to be like Voldemort's big, scary magic trick. So it's unusual that all of his followers are able to do it. I don't think we see any good wizards doing flight, at least without the aid of a broom. Yeah, it's it's not a huge deal because they're consistent with it in the movies. You know, the Death Eaters are always being shown flying around in that manner. Uh, but against the books, it's a little funky. I do have to say, it was a big mistake not to open this movie with Cornelius Fudge talking to Tony Blair and being sad. <laughs> <laughs> I enjoy that there's a muggle version of the Daily Prophet that doesn't have moving pictures. <laughs> Just for prying eyes. Just in case you're, you know, a wizard on the run. Also, also a lot look of people at have Harry a hard just time shooting with... for the moon here. <laughs> so a lot of people have a hard time with uh, this opening. I actually enjoy the fact that Harry attempts to be normal for five seconds. <laughs> Yeah, I like it. But Harry, you've got wizard babes who are into you. (laughs) No, he wants girls who are impressed by his cheap parlor tricks. (laughs) I mean, that'd be the most unfair way to get a girl. Most guys just kind of play some guitar and assume that's going to be impressive. This guy can summon light out of a piece of wood. He can start fires. All sorts of other shenanigans. Ah, horror Dumbledore! (laughs) (laughs) The theme to It Follows starts playing. (laughs) 
standing oh, there like right. the Terminator. I will say I have, I understand and even agree with opening uh, with this with uh, this being the meeting between Dumbledore and Harry. I do kind of miss the uh, confrontation between Dumbledore and the Dursleys, though. Yeah, it's, it's a bit weird when you don't get Dumbledore finally telling them off, and Order of the Phoenix also cuts out Dumbledore's explanation for why he sent the Harry to the Dursleys because of uh, Vivian being Lily's sister. The uh, protection spell only works when he's at their house, mm-hmm. so it does kind of just come across in the movies that Dumbledore doesn't give a shit. Plus, yeah. they replaced it with Dumbledore ruining Harry's date and being callous <laughs> about it. Like, shut up, boy. Come with me. We've got magic to do. He does apologize for cock-blocking him. Which but I, like a Dumbledore way where it doesn't come across as sincere. Just like, eh, I would have done it no matter what. You still have your hand. Salt. <laughs> he kind of rubs salt in the wound, doesn't he? Oh, I've taken a wonderful evening away from you. <laughs> <laughs> look at my funny hand though Harry look at it <laughs> I would fucking love if that was Dumbledore's personality in this movie just every five seconds well I understand you don't want to do this Harry uh, maybe me and my ruined hand can do it or maybe my just ruined hand can get Slughorn <laughs> I will say about the hand though it's one of my favorite little details in the movie because typically in, in films, if someone gets hurt, it's it's a short-term term deal. If someone takes a bullet to the shoulder, they go to the hospital for two days and everything's back to normal. Recently, as I was watching a musician do a review of the movie Green Room, and one of the first things they commented on was how horrifying it would be if you were Anton Yeltsin and like someone cut your arm up like they do in that movie. Because he's a bass player. If someone severed like a bunch of nerves in your hand and didn't work the right way anymore, you could never play your instrument. In the real world, that's what would happen. In a movie world, you put some duct tape on it and you're probably fine the next day. So even though Dumbledore, spoilers, doesn't live past this movie, they implied that there's no magic that would cure that hand. It's just going to get progressively worse, and he's always going to have that magical scar on him for whatever remained of his life. And you can, there's all sorts of other movies that kind of bother me in those regards. Even Scream, do we get stabbed a bunch of times? And in the second movie, he has nerve damage, so he kind of walks with a limp and his hand is kind of curled up. But by the fourth movie, they've forgotten all of that. David Arquette doesn't do any of those mannerisms anymore. Apparently, his they nerves healed, healed nerve completely. Yeah. It's one of the Through best features cells, of I the walking it's magic. <laughs> uh, in this world, I guess magic would be a fine answer. But that's one of the best parts of the Walking Dead comic books. When people in the, those comics get hurt, they are permanently injured. You know, if you get shot in the arm, your arm is just useless from then on. If someone cuts your arm off, it doesn't grow back. They can't get you a good replacement. <laughs> I like the implication that when most people get their arms cut off in movies, they just grow back by the sequel. I mean, kind of. Think of Star Wars. Luke just gets a robot hand that's indistinguishable from a real hand. Anakin loses all of his limbs, and that turns out fine. <laughs> that's kind of true, yeah. I never really looked at it that way, but it is kind of fine. It's better, arguably? <laughs> yeah. He's crippled for life, and that just makes him cool. <laughs> I mean, the breathing thing was only because he was on fire and his lungs got messed up, and apparently they don't have good robot lungs. <laughs> but arms, they can do all day long in Star Wars. Honestly, I, I would like assume his lungs are perfectly choice. fine, just they had crappy robot technology. 
<laughs> Look it's at Harry, like a hundred movies in, still being wowed by fucking magic. <laughs> I will say, Jim Broadbent transforming into a ch- from a chair into him is one of my favorite visuals of the entire series. Uh, I yeah. love the goofy design of him standing up and still having a chair arm that he has to swat away. It's so good. Yeah, can we just talk for a moment at what pitch-perfect casting Jim Broadbent as Horace Slughorn is, despite the fact that he looks absolutely nothing like the character? <laughs> I, To be honest, I don't even remember how, what Slughorn looks like from the books. Broadbent makes such a strong impression. I'm like, that's it. That's the guy. That's that's what he is now in all medium. Uh, Slughorn is gigantic, bald, and has a giant walrus mustache, which I would have loved to see them attempt with uh, Jim Broadbent. They could have they could have glued a false one on him. That's the weird thing. I feel like Broadbent is giving a fat performance somehow. <laughs> like he's one of those actors. <laughs> I would, I would real love thing. if he there came in just eating candy bars each day. We're going to make this happen. My voice has to sound jowlier. I, I want to read Slughorn's rants in the op-ed section. No, we really roll over the fact he's just living in somebody's house. <laughs> he was probably going to magic it back to normal before he left. Just saying, the plot of The Strangers is happening right now with Slughorn. <laughs> I mean, if you had the magical power to get away with it, what's the worst that happens? Someone walks in and he just hits him with, like, a, a memory curse so they forget about it. Then he just straightens everything up. They forget he was ever there. He lives rent-free for, like, two weeks. God, I, the you... look on Gambin's face during the scene makes me so happy. <laughs> <laughs> and he just wizard peed. <laughs> Somehow, in that outfit. <laughs> uh, he just apparates it. That, that's the real magic, Mike. Oh, yeah, it makes him shiver all over. <laughs> also, could you imagine the horror of them coming home early? And there's just strange photos of people in formal dress. They don't know all around their house. And, and a their strange sofa's chair. alive. <laughs> just, I don't remember that chair being there. It's getting closer every minute. Somehow, it's approaching. I, I want so badly for Rowling to do for the Potter series what uh, Nokai Urasawa did for Monster. And just do a sequel book that's all about people reacting to things off camera. <laughs> just the one guy whose day got really fucked up because of that bridge collapsing. And it's the 90s, so everyone's like listening to Vanilla Ice and shit. <laughs> I always forget that little fact that all the Harry Potter films are, are technically taking place from like, what, 1990 to 97? It's For really seemingly weird. no reason to. Yeah, I don't know why they decided to keep the... I guess just so they don't have to deal with cell phones or anything, but... Wizard like, cell phones. Yeah, it's like you wouldn't need them anyway. And the thing is... It's a magic world. They, the world's already broken. You can't fix that. it. Everything can be done with magic. But look like what Harry's wearing. He's wearing modern clothes, arguably. God damn it, Dumbledore. You just dumped Harry in a pond. After cock-blocking him. 
You know what, Dumbledore? I'm glad you have a ruined hand. <laughs> you take that wizard cancer. <laughs> Damn. Although Dumbledore was kind enough to deliver... Yeah, that room is... Dumbledore was kind enough to deliver all of Harry's belongings, but then dump Harry Potter himself into a pond. <laughs> he just likes to knock Harry he's, down a peg. I think he's that's like a sour it. patch him humble. First he's sour, then he's sweet. <laughs> also, I want to say specifically, it was at this moment with this sequence, I breathed a heavy sigh of relief and thought to myself, oh, thank God this has a visual personality. <laughs> oh yeah everything's Yates much more out. confident in this film uh, it's dates dates yates his second time around uh, he, you can tell he's much more comfortable helming one of these films there's a little bit of continuity too which is nice you know they can start building on things and lessons learned from last time rather than starting over from scratch yeah yeah like say what you will about the film's uh, visual style which uh, puts it up in like in the lower tier of Harry Potter movies, I feel, just visually. It, it does have a distinct style, though. It doesn't have that Order of the Phoenix feel where you're just seeing shots lifted from other Harry Potter movies. The strange like, I can see though. a frame like this and say, okay, that's Harry Potter and the Half-Blood Prince. Yeah. My problem with the visual style... And of course, this is the one that was, you know, nominated for an Oscar for cinematography and whatnot. So I guess it's maybe a little hard to insult. It's not for me. It's kind of ugly, but not because it's not well shot or doesn't look interesting. I actually really like the almost uh, European uh, turn of it. And I kind of like some of the washed out colors. Um. But I find that it's out of step with the story and the tone of the script, and they don't. And the visual style, which I think by itself looks good, ends up being ugly for me personally because of what's going on, and it's it hurts uh, to me the the energy of the film slightly. Very much so. Naturally, we brought all of that up during a nice warm scene, but this is a much Dying. better scene for everything we were discussing. It takes on that gloomy look. Uh, Bruno Delbanel was the cinematographer for this one. He's worked with the Coen brothers on Inside Llewellyn Davis. No surprise there. I mean, the films share a lot of similarities. Uh, but he's also worked with Tim Burton on Miss Peregrine's Home for Peculiar Children, uh, Big Eyes, and, wait for it, Dark Shadows. So, uh, the guy knows his way around making washed out, morose looking films. It's not by accident or anything. That's just his skill set. And I think what he gravitates towards naturally a lot of the time. It's what? not my favorite. And it really gives me a negative impression of the film. Because all I remember is just feeling bummed out, even yeah. during the joyous scenes. But that's the choice they made. And it's not wrong. I just don't agree with the decision. But that's personal. That's, you know, Same. just my opinion. You know, if you forget that this is a Harry Potter film, like if you look at the scene like this and think, OK, this is just a a gothic romance, then it's an objectively beautiful looking film. It's just such an odd pull for Harry Potter. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And the quoted scenes in, in the quoted scenes in particular um, or even stuff just in the dorms, they're all just so ugly. I, I don't. 
I don't feel like it was necessary to make Hogwarts feel oppressive in this film. Especially since, I mean, they go back to Hogwarts, obviously, for the big battle in Deathly Hollows, But this is the last year where they're actually learning in school. It's the last time we get to stand around the school and treat it as a welcome, warm, safe spot. Also, neat trick they're doing in the background. And this is something you can see all the time in Kurosawa films. You just place the characters in front of windows and then you put weather in the windows. So in this case, they're all saying they're talking and you have a downpour behind them that's very visible. And it just adds a little bit of visual flair to the scene. And you will see this tons of times throughout the movie. It's either raining or snowing each time there's a window for like the first half of the film. So on the other hand of the cinematography that we're just going on about in a negative sense, I think touches like those are why this film got the recognition for the Oscar. It's smart storytelling and it makes it feel more alive and lived in. Yeah. yeah it's, it's not static by any means. Yeah, it's not thoughtless cinematography like there is a lot going on in the frame just maybe isn't the best choice the color grading i think is kind of what gets me i don't have an issue with a lot of the other bits and oh yeah it's the, i can it's, see why they did the color grading they did it's There's the just parts focus where it too confusing. i don't care for oh that yeah but i mean there there's a scene later on at the great hall where you can't tell that ron weasley is a ginger like his hair just looks more grayish blonde because the colors are all washed out and that That's weirded me out <laughs> how are you supposed to know he's a weasley boy <laughs> he doesn't even look poor <laughs> and to me it's so. it's odd because so much of the middle part of the film which i don't even really care for as a film but uh, like all the romance stuff it's supposed to be more like comedic and jolly but the, the cinematography, the feeling of the film doesn't fit it. And meanwhile, this sequence looks great. So, Yeah, this is another one that kind of makes you feel silly for all the things you just said. Because look at bright colors everywhere. The wonderful production design. I, I love, absolutely love the giant hatted man out front of the building. The character that gives the energy inside this place. All the little CGI touches for magic. It's just kind of chaotic. It's fun you could pause this and think oh wait there's like 10 great little gags happening at any given second and talking about yates being more comfortable one thing yates is super uh more into and more comfortable handling of the harry potter style of visual effects if you go back to phoenix they're much more downplayed like he doesn't quite know how to pull off a lot of stuff mm. uh and i think that's why you get a lot of like cr- randomly bad cgi in order of the phoenix uh, but here, like, between the the couch gag earlier, this entire scene, a lot of stuff that happens. Um, fucking um, Dumbledore's Ring of Fire in the third act. Like, all that stuff. It's it, it's some of the best-looking, um, like, magical world stuff of the entire series. For sure. I also want to point out quickly, one of the dual themes for the movie love is been kind of pushed here we see characters standing around the love potion we hear about Ginny's previous boyfriend there's just a lot of talk about love early in the film and we'll get much more of it as love potions and ron's relationship are delved into 
I just find it interesting that love and luck seem to be the two carrying points through this film, whereas some of the other ones were more just about companionship or how you make your family. So I, I do enjoy that this one gets its own theme to run with. I think yeah. for all the Harry Potters, it's typically, hey, family is what you make it, and we're better off with our friends. This one says, oh, let's go in some different directions. Instead of just friendship, instead of just platonic love, what if we have, you know, actual romantic love? What does that mean? And luck ties pretty deeply into the Harry Potter mythos because it plays a huge part in how Harry is still standing. He's the chosen one, but he gets there a lot of time due to luck or circumstance, not his own skills. And he's just filled with his mother's love, just a bursting with it. Bursting. Man, there is a lot of setup in this movie. Um, it takes him something like 30 minutes to get to Hogwarts, which isn't all that bad in a two-and-a-half-hour movie. And I think we had about the same amount of distance between the opening and Hogwarts in the previous film. But it just makes it feel like there's a lot of setup happening before we get to the story proper. In this case, what do we have? The Death Eaters start by kidnapping Ollivander and knocking down the bridge. We have recruiting Slughorn. Harry shows up at Ron's. There's the Unbreakable Vow, the Weasley Gag Shop. Now we've got Borgen and Burks and the hint of what Draco is going to be up to for the year. It feels like a lot of threads are being weaved into the picture to start us off. Makes sense because, you know, from this point onward, it's it's trying to deal with the Voldemort plot and the schooling is secondary. But the school is still a giant part of this movie, so it's a little awkwardly paced to have to deal with all these other things before we get to the actual school. Yeah, if I if I had my druthers, I would have actually cut that scene of spying on Draco completely. We get a lot of necessary. stuff with Draco in the school. There's no reason for it. I would agree. I think it's perfectly fine just to cut, you know, the two minutes we spend there. Yeah, it's uh, it makes Draco's stuff work better if it's not there. It makes it more mysterious. And I really like Draco's um, kind of background arc here. And I think that kind of hurts it because it makes whatever's going on really obvious. I like when people are yeah. talking around Draco about what he has to do. <laughs> And then you just see Draco kind of having to deal with whatever's going on. Plus, Draco's plot is stretched out over the whole movie. So you get a scene of him, like, messing around with the cabinet for five seconds, and then cuts something else for 20 minutes, and he comes back, and now he's got an apple, and then it cuts away, and then he's got a feather. And uh, Once you already have a pretty good idea of what he's doing, it just feels like they're dragging it out for so long. Yeah. Yeah, very similar complaints about the unbreakable vow scene which honestly i think is my biggest point of contention with this movie it's so strange that that comes 17 minutes into the big snape movie <laughs> it's like it i feel like you i have to either open with that as you did uh with the book or just cut it completely and have the audience not know that snape is a death eater because it doesn't really work as a first, a first act reveal. Like uh, Mike had said, uh, we were talking about it the other day, it just kind of comes across like you missed something in the previous movie. Yeah. I do like the visuals they give the Unbreakable Vow. It, they're right. simple, but 
it illustrates it magically, which is nice, other than them just shaking hands. Uh, and by showing us that Snape was working with the Death Eaters, I don't know, I, I guess it sells the fact that he's converted very strongly. Everyone tells them point blank, like, oh, I don't know if we can trust Snape or not, but we've seen he can't be trusted. I think it adds a little bit more suspense and a little bit more shock when it's revealed that Snape isn't actually a bad guy later on. I don't know, I could, I could take it. I think that scene is fine. It's just unfortunate there, there's so much they need to get through before going to the school. I think it's just the placement. It's like the scene's Very great. Much. It's just it needs to come closer to the opening. It uh, not to be. Um, I actually think this is a, a wonderful film. It's not my favorite. It's probably one of my least favorites because it's not that fun to watch, <laughs> mainly due to the look. Um, and do just, it's a very scene. somber story. But um, yeah, I, one of my biggest issues of it is there's no real main character. Yeah. This um, one's fun because they have to give everyone a lot more weight. Like, this is Snape's story, finally. So instead of him just standing around, he gets some meaty stuff to do at points. Yeah. And we have the budding relationship between Ron and Hermione really finally taking a step forward instead of just being a hinted at thing. I like all that. We really get into Draco for once. This one feels like it's a Hogwarts story, not a Harry Potter story. Yeah, which I think, which is perfectly fine. Like, I love all of the stuff all the characters are doing. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's great that I think everybody has meaty stuff. But it, it's just odd because you're so used to the movies having a singular focus. And then you kind of get in here. The movie seems to not really even be aware that it's more of an ensemble piece this time. So it feels very floaty. Like you're watching uh, a prolonged montage of various characters more so than um, switching focus around. Also, boy, Draco kicking Harry in the face then covering with the invisibility cloak. Cold-blooded! <laughs> if you I feel like you should have had more of a one-liner. The, the face kick, I think, was enough. Just, that always bothered me. Just imagine you're paralyzed and someone decides to stomp your face. And then make you invisible so no one can help you. <laughs> That's pretty terrifying. Harry kind of deserved it, though. It was a stupid plan to sneak in there. I don't even know how he managed to get away with it as much as he did. Like, he had to somehow wrap himself in that invisibility cloak and climb up into the luggage rack with, like, five seconds of magic smoke. Yeah, where's that deleted scene? Him just awkwardly trying to get in there and then falling down? <laughs> His legs visible? You never saw him. You just think, like, when he's up there, like, his butt would be hanging out. Like, he wouldn't be able to wrap the cloak around himself properly. <laughs> oh, God, it's that horrible butt ghost that haunts the Grimaldi Express. <laughs> he's just lucky no one put their luggage up. God, he is I pissed. Have to, I have to say, I'm so glad that Warwick Davis gets his most... Like, the most amount of lines he has in this entire series here. <laughs> Just being indignant about everything. I assume he must be the world's most lovely man, because every franchise that he's ever been a part of, like, goes out of its way to find him cameo roles. Uh, like, you saw that one shot from Solo. <laughs> 
I think he was in a lot of the other shots too. They just like had him in a helmet and stuff, so you couldn't even tell it was him. <laughs> that his beautiful long hair flowing in the wind, because that's the only way Ron Howard knows how to shoot Warwick Davis. <laughs> <laughs> it's the hero of that universe. Didn't they like one of the movies let him play two characters in one Almost of the Potter movies? Yeah, yeah like it's not everyone's like, not just Flipwick. All of a sudden, he's a goblin. He's yeah. I think he just hangs out on set, and they're like, "Great, throw a wig on him. It's fine." Who's gonna say no to Warwick Davis? Put him on stilts. He can be a tall person this this time. <laughs> they do a Mulholland Drive where he just wears like a full body suit, but doesn't move, making it very unconcerning. Can he be Voldemort? No. Is that how much I love the line "exceptionally ordinary"? <laughs> Luna is a character it would have been nice to get more out of, but yeah, she, she has the best gag the ever in this movie, though. <laughs> <laughs> Stop fat shaming Ron. He's a growing boy. It's, it's funny because normally people shit on Ron, but this is Ron's movie. Everything comes up Ron. <laughs> he gets on the Quidditch team. He's a star for the day. Uh, he gets the good potion book that turns out to not have notes in it, but he, he thinks he won at the time. Hermione secretly likes him. He gets a girlfriend who's obsessed with him. For some reason, this is the year of Ron. At last. And he still nearly dies. Yeah, well, it's the year of Ron. It can't change everything. <laughs> it's like the year of Luigi. Luigi still gets shit on, but, you know, at least gets some recognition. I think this movie does a better job recognizing its cast, maybe, than some of the other ones have. Oh, yeah. Typically, there's a new member, like, for Defense Against the Dark Arts, and they get the spotlight on them. That's true here with Slughorn, but everybody seems like they get more moments. Snape has a lot to do this time. McGonagall is underused, but her moments seem very powerful. Like, they're very memorable, even if she only has a few lines. <laughs> they This is the year of Ron, so Ron really gets a lot to do. We get to see the Weasley joke shop, which gives a lot to those characters. They only have a few lines, but they're so memorable. We get to spend a little bit of time with Slytherin for once. Yeah, Draco feels like a more fleshed out character. All of the and, and Dumbledore too. This is Dumbledore's movie. He finally gets so much time to shine. I I like how much a lot of these characters who are underplayed get to step up this time around. Unfortunately, there's like almost no Hagrid, so he had yeah, Hagrid just not in this movie, really. <laughs> he gets won. the scene with Aragog's corpse. Yeah, one one of the great thing, the great sleight of hands, I think this movie does though, is oh Jenny, oh she's just been a main character this whole time, haven't you noticed? Yeah, exactly. It's she's like it's brilliant. Been like... There. Yeah, they just prominently put her in all the sh shots now, so you feel like she was always there. Whereas in the other ones, they kind of like, eh, we'll give you a call on Tuesday if we need extras. <laughs> so the intensity of Goyle there. <laughs> pip, pip. This time, I've... Draco gets all the angst. I love sad boy Draco. And this weird scene of, for some reason, Ron and Harry just gawking at the children who have to go to class. 
Aha! We don't have school! Look at the smalls! <laughs> I mean, they're almost graduated. They're juniors at this point, essentially, so it makes sense they would be having this kind of reaction. But I don't think I've ever done this in any school I've ever been to. In college, when I had a free period, I would like be laying down in a library somewhere sleeping for an hour. <laughs> or even in high school, if I had an hour off, it wasn't like I was standing in the hallway like, ah, he's going to German class. <laughs> Maybe the British are just different. It's British. You know that's a British thing. <laughs> it, it's it's uh, something in this movie, though, because after Voldemort came back, you have scenes like that and like Order of the Phoenix and whatnot. And it feels so weird because the movie's not addressing how horrible everything is. And I yeah. think just putting that Death Eater attack up front lets you actually have scenes of Harry and Ron like goofing off and whatnot and having a good time because it feels like, okay, the movie is addressing there are horrible things happening out there. So it just doesn't, it doesn't make it feel like the characters are being oblivious and stupid. That's a fair point, because Harry doesn't reflect too much on some of that stuff here. He's got a little bit of a lighter plot going on for a lot of these bits, where he's you know winning contests, making potions, or joking around with Ron. When in reality... You know, he's gone through a lot of loss the last two years, and there's bad stuff happening to him. Harry's very Which shut I didn't down really even pay film. attention to. Yeah, I didn't really pay attention to that until you mentioned that fact. It plays very naturally. To back up just for one second, though, Maggie Smith's small scene back there is what I was talking about, how she has such a presence in this film, even if she's not really doing anything. In, in that case, she always strikes that wonderful mix between charming and stern. I like that the veterans get their due. So I just want to say I love the small detail of Hermione recognizing the toothpaste because her parents are dentists. <laughs> <laughs> One thing to pay attention to here, if you can hear it under us talking, uh, Nicholas Hooper returned for score duties. And in the last commentary, I was a little bit hard on his uh, music. I didn't think it was all that impressive for what it was doing. But this time around, I think he's more comfortable with it. Maybe they gave him more time. I'm not sure. But it sounds like he has more free reign. During this scene, we have a lot of kind of hoppy cues while they're making the potions, and they stand out. They sound like they belong to the Harry Potter universe, but they're not just a retread of something John Williams did. They have their own unique sound yeah. in life. I think on the last one, he might have felt uh, too constrained and afraid to go too close to Williams. So you just get a kind of a Phoenix sort of has just this generic adventure score more than anything else. This feels like a Harry Potter score because I think he was more okay with uh, playing in that tone. He gives it a bit of a quirky comedy vibe at points. Yeah. Which works. I mean, there is kind of a quirky comedy vibe to a lot of the film anyways, so it, it accentuates that. And I like it. Like here, you see, this is the property of the Half-Blood Prince. And it's it's not even like a dark, mysterious sound. They don't really pay it special attention. They're moving into this kind of wacky, fun beat. Uh, 
it's always fun to see Hermione struggle at something. <laughs> the movies kind of go out of their way to be like, let's knock her down a peg. But it's nice. We all know that super smart person that maybe had a difficulty once in a while, and you sit there like, ha, ha, welcome to the normie club. <laughs> this is- so does, doesn't that score just make it look like they're, they're making pasta or something? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. This reminds me of how I am with Lego sets. I'm, I'm the Hermione here. You do it like the instructions say, whereas other people are just freebasing it and doing crazy cool stuff. <laughs> freebasing Legos. <laughs> Your future. They, they can do crazy stuff without rules. I'm over there like, the pages don't say how to do this. Harry so, and his cheating book. I love Hermione and her book hair for one <laughs> scene. <laughs> It's also interesting to me that Harry finds like his first true standout success in the magic world, not by his own merit. He just happened to luck out and get a book that tells him the exact perfect way to do things. And of course, his reward for being lucky is he gets liquid luck, luck <laughs> just feeding on itself. Here you go. I think that was a little bit cheeky on Rotling's part. We're going to make Harry lucky and his reward is going to be more luck. <laughs> yeah, and it's taught by some... Snape. I know that's something that I think is kind of like really not talked about with this and Deathly Hallows, like the kind of almost deconstruction of how the Perry, Harry Potter stories have been so far, where ultimately the thing that has to be destroyed to take down Voldemort are these magical items that Voldemort has collected over the years, much in the way that Harry Potter just is constantly having things handed to him that allow him to win the day. And ultimately, Harry has to destroy that trope in his own story. I like it, too, because when you think of the destined one, it feels like fate is pulling for them, but they're going to do all the work. But there's always fate to back it up. Like, if they screw up, it doesn't matter because it'll still turn out okay. Harry Potter refused that a little bit because it doesn't want to say, well, he's the chosen one. Of course, everything's going to work out for him. You get the sense that Harry Potter could screw up and lose. And they, they do make Harry struggle through a lot of these things and have to earn his way through, even if things are being handed to him. So you get a mix. <laughs> it really reminds me of Immortals. Remember that movie where Hyperion or... uh one of the main characters, Theseus, it was Theseus in that one. He's the chosen one destined to save the world from Hyperion, but he doesn't really do anything in that film. <sighs> like, he gets into a fight with Mickey Rourke at the end, but doesn't really stop him from doing what he was supposed to. Eventually, the gods show up and do that for him. So, his whole plot is is pointless. He, he showed up, he did what he's supposed to, kind of failed at, and the gods shrugged and went, well, well, we'll just finish this off. No harm, no foul. You just described Greek mythology. Yeah. <laughs> Harry also, Potter, we don't have that. Harry Potter, like, the gods just don't sweep in and take care of things for him. He's got to understand some of these lessons and apply some of them to be able to save the day. He has to all, make choices. And all of the godlike authority figures in Harry's life get picked off one by one like it's a slasher movie. Yeah. Also, I do want to say you are being very unfair to Theseus. He does one very important thing in that movie – be fine as hell. <laughs> Don't get me wrong. I love Immortals. It's one of the most beautiful movies out there. Uh, 
I love all of its weird little quirks. The action is fantastic. I just think the plot is hilarious because none of it matters. Hey, look, once again, it's rain out the window. I was like, can we talk about, like, speaking of fine as hell, Dumbledore in the scene? (laughs) Oh, good. I thought you were going to mention creepy Damien Voldemort. (laughs) It's such a long bridge to cross to get from this kid to Tom Riddle in Chamber of Secrets. We just don't talk about that, Tom Riddle. Yeah, he had an awkward phase, and then he was beautifully glowed up. I I like to think that... uh diary tom riddle is like he intentionally made himself prettier <laughs> so he's just better his flashbacks. yeah i could see that uh, one thing i absolutely love about the set design of this orphanage is having it mirror the ministry of magic from order of the phoenix oh, yeah. do you think that's just supposed to be because like the administration of the ministry and this being, you know, an orphanage, I'm assuming, is pretty much government-run. Everything just kind of looks... This is the look of government in the Harry Potter world. I feel like that's what they're trying to say. Kind of the totalitarian idea going or, on. Or maybe since Tom hated this area, it would make sense the ministry would be decorated like it, so you link his hatred between them? I, I think so. I mean, they're both systems that he wants to destroy, so... Voldemort, the magic libertarian. I don't know, a lot tolerated Hogwarts, to be fair, Dumbledore. You let kids get away with a lot of shit there. And you break your own rules all the time. Right, and their reward punishment system just gets ignored at the end of the year when you arbitrarily award, like, 2,000 <laughs> points to Gryffindor. Do you think when he left the orphanage, he was like, 10,000 points to the orphans? <laughs> Weird, my yo-yo stopped getting stolen. Also, the wardrobe stopped lighting itself on fire. They just moved to another room. Surprisingly, the pensives are just out of a horror movie in this version. The visuals are great on the pensives. I love the smoke people transform into as they go back into just being memories in a pool. The production design crew really did a knockout job, I think, here. Plus, whatever you would call, like, the CGI design. It's a separate group. Just the artists? I don't know. Harry is horrified. Don't make me talk to teachers. It turns out Slughorn's actually a terrible, terrible professor. Those kids are getting a bad education because he wanted to get some information out of them. (laughs) I don't think Dumbledore would care about that in the slightest. He'd be cool with those kids not learning anything. They were going to brew glory, Dumbledore. You took that from them. He's made some pretty poor choices for Defense Against the Dark Arts. So, yeah. (laughs) I'm sorry. Oh, they cleaned that window too good. The Death Eaters couldn't get through. (laughs) I I love the implication that they just try that every day. Oh, it's still up. Even in Jurassic Park, they're like, the Velociraptors are smart enough to never attack the fence in the same spot twice. I think Voldemort just sends them out there and then laughs at them when they get knocked back. (laughs) There's like a wizard prank show they're on right now. 
So here we Death get the first and practical jokes. Here we get the first of I'm going to say 30 scenes of Draco <laughs> in this room slowly revealing his dastardly plot. Although I think it's spelled out to Harry a little bit later on too, like what's going on that there's a magic cabinet in here. It's pretty much super spelled out. Yeah, there's there's everyone knows what's happening, which makes it so weird that they spend so much time setting it up. Yeah, the movie doesn't seem to know whether or not it's going for a sense of dread by letting you know information, or whether it's a, a slow-rolled mystery. Can't seem to decide. Yeah, I, they get a blend of it, though, because we get a lot of scenes of Malfoy just weeping in hallways, so we do yeah. feel his conflict, which is arguably the more important thing. The mystery isn't important. It's It's the character work. It's very true. Also, yeah. Jenny is now just in charge of the Quidditch team. She's been Wouldn't there. She always worry. wink. <laughs> <laughs> You've always lived in the castle. <laughs> so I would love to have a, a split screen of these shots from uh, Sorcerer's Stone and in this movie. <laughs> it's like, talk about night and day Quidditch. <laughs> Like, like a goddamn like... cocky this guy is. Don't worry, we're going for the same role. You've lost already in his giant, thick wand staff. <laughs> the symbolism. I thought you were going to talk about his giant teeth. She is, I'm assuming, into teeth. Her parents were dentists. That's just that's genetic, right? That carries on. I mean, they're, they're, her parents aren't dentists because they have a fetish, though I have known a dentist. Are you sure? Why is Lavender so into Ron? Is that ever explained? Um, psychosis? Uh. Well, this is bullshit recast Lavender Brown, so. <laughs> Not my There's Lavender. Hey, we don't talk about that. It feels so weird coming back to Quidditch. Like, the, the series never truly abandoned Quidditch, but it got less important after the first two movies. You know, it's barely part of three. Four, we get the Quidditch World Cup. It, you know, it just lacks importance. But here it becomes another major plot point, for Ron anyways, his subplot. And we take a long time just having this rather kind of charming, upbeat scene that feels at odds with Draco plotting to kill Dumbledore. The scene that shot as though, uh, <laughs> that shot as though, uh, Fines is playing a different kind of Nazi in this movie. <laughs> like, I feel like, it just, it's weird. It's like what you were talking about earlier, Mike, with just the, uh, disconnect between tone and visuals. Like, I feel like I can smell this Quidditch court. Yeah. It's very strange. And I, I don't know if it was... I mean, visuals aside, I don't know if it was an attempt to... And this was their last good time at Hogwarts, which... Makes sense. You know, there, and then there's yeah. other things bubbling beneath the surface. That's... You know, that, that, that works. Maybe you want to cut out some of that a little bit, just to cut back on the runtime so it's less random, <laughs> it's a, but... This is a long friggin' movie. But then you get the disconnects 
between the the visual style and that stuff that's going on where it feels like i'm still in the world of draco crying while he's plotting nazi murder essentially <laughs> so it's like I'm, I'm just confused <laughs> to return to our talk about luck i also think it's kind of hilarious that harry potter has a lucky book but it actually gets him to become a better student like in his spare time he's just reading through the cliff notes in his book and picking up random shit that's in there like that uh the, the snape's attack cutting spell <laughs> And now he's just sitting here reading through these notes again. Harry Potter got a lucky book, and instead of just relying on that, he decided now is the time to actually become a good student. I'm fascinated by this cheat book. (laughs) If he had a normal version of the potions book, he would give two shits about potions class. That's an interesting microcosm, I think, for Harry's entire journey. Like you were talking about, he gets handed luck a lot. And he does with this book, and, it, and it, it helps him out in such large strides. He gets maybe a little bit cocky because of it. And then he nearly kills Draco. So it has to go away now. <laughs> That's because Harry always tries his spells out on living people. Like, he doesn't find, like, a curtain to try it against. He's like, well, let's just see if a human <laughs> being is susceptible to this magic. He's not particularly good. No, well, no. The movie makes it a clear point. Like, he doesn't have great test scores. He's never, like, impressing people with most of the magic. Sometimes he gets taught, like, an advanced spell, and he happens to be good at that, but you, you kind of get the impression he's only good at it because he's being pushed into it. If all students were exposed to it at the same time, he would not be the best one at it. Yeah. I, I always actually appreciate that about Harry's uh, version of the Chosen One trope, which it's made abundantly clear. There's no bones about it. He's... Not the chosen one because he's super good at magic or anything like that. Right. Uh, And here we go back to the love theme. Ginny's got herself a boyfriend and Ron's having none of it. So kind of the intersection of family and love. I love what a fucking Mac Ginny is in this movie, by the way. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, Ron's kind of an intersection of a lot of these things. We see how he reacts to Ginny finding love. But he's also on the recipient side of luck because Harry pretends to give him the liquid luck spell. Hermione curses the other guy, so he screws up in practice, and Ron gets his spot. Like, Ron's being given a lot of luck, but he's not giving a lot of love. At this point, at least. And then he starts giving it all to Lavender, but it's not meant to be. For once, Ron is lucky, but not in love. Also, they make those butter beers look fucking phenomenal. They really do. I should, I should have made one of those instead of a dark and stormy. <laughs> Isn't that like just a soft drink with some foam on top of it? Yeah. Pretty much. It's like you can make your own. I think a lot of it's like, hey, just melt some Werther's down and spray some Cool Whip on it. Oh boy. The shame, Hermione. The shame. <laughs> You see, it's like, that's really funny, but the visual style is so strange for that scene. It doesn't help the way that it's played. Like, Hermione looks like she's about to start weeping right there. Yeah. <laughs> somber. Everybody feels like they're in purgatory in, like, an Italian horror film. <laughs> Speaking of which, Curse oh, Girl! Yeah. 
the scariest fucking thing in this entire series all of a sudden. <laughs> I would still put the spiders above it. Well, yeah. But yeah, the conjuring ragdoll they're doing here, not... <laughs> ah! I can see all her feelings! So Junji Ito of them. I'm Hagrid, and I'm here now in this movie. <laughs> I love Hagrid storming in like he's the law. <laughs> For Hogsmeade, he is the sheriff. It is also, weird, like, now that we've done commentaries for all these back-to-back, how completely just rolled over and lost Hagrid becomes in this series. Yeah. It's a shame, because, like you said, they're ensemble pieces, and you have so many characters they can focus on. How do you decide who gets the time? Hagrid starts off as a very important character, but technically he's not even supposed to practice magic, so he seems like he should become a minor character as the magic escalates. So I understand like why they have to minimize people as they go along. It's just a shame because they become fan favorites. No. They couldn't find more room for someone to be huge. God. McGonagall is so upset that she's in a Harry Potter movie. <laughs> so just sneaky Snape wandering into frame. <laughs> <laughs> also, I like the um, visual connection between Ron and Hermione there with the uh, yeah. sweaters. It's very clever. Who was going to give Dumbledore a necklace? <laughs> also, Harry Potter goes into a pup named Scooby-Doo territory right now. <laughs> I have no evidence it was Draco Malfoy, but it was Red Herring. Harry had to know this was never going to fly. Like, McGonagall would also call that bullshit. Hey, look, now there's falling snow behind the windows. Uh, and Snape definitely was never going to take it. Harry, you said a stupid thing. You should feel bad. <laughs> yeah, I'm 100% on Snape's side here. Right, he did not make a convincing case. Oh, Harry is so full of uh, desperate paranoia throughout this entire film. I mean, it's funny because he's right, but <laughs> he does a terrible job convincing people. <laughs> I think you see that a lot in the films, too. Like, Snape might be right about things, but he's an asshole when he says them, so no one wants to listen. That's why he's the greatest hero of all. Slick get. I think British people just make up words. Oh, but they're all fun. Oh, it's a bit of fiddle fella, isn't it? Ron, can you not talk to me right now? <laughs> These guys talking about love is just very... Awkward. God, I never really thought about it. It must be so hard to rub one out in Hogwarts. There's the room. Like the room requirement. requirement <laughs> whatever. <laughs> I need a masturbation den. And just, it, it's just the same old room, but those gigantic like nude statues from the never-ending story are there. <laughs> the walls are just made of fleshlights. It's horrifying. 
Oh, Besides, they Neville do have so the abandoned girls' bathroom. No one apparently goes in besides their main heroes. Yeah, but Myrtle's in there. Yeah. And she likes to peep. <sighs> Terrible also, idea. Terrible. Moving on. Also, I never really thought about it until I said just now, is Neville in this movie? He is. He, they show him as a butler in one of the party scenes. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's very brief. Yes. I think at this point, they they realized they couldn't stop how beautiful the actor had become. <laughs> and the beatification had begun. It was, yeah, it, was, it wasn't worth it. They're like, fuck it, we'll just wait, we'll give him a... He kills a snake later, that'll be it. I have to say, this this is the chapter that has the least impressive movie food of all these movies. They've got a penguin that slides around in a cake at one point. More twins. There's a lot of twins, apparently, in the Harry Potter world. Identical twins are all over these films. It's magic. I'm fascinated that they don't know what dentists are. Like, I know they're from the magical world, but they still live on Earth. They probably all live like the Weasleys. Like, these are the fancy, famous wizards, so they're probably really entrenched in the wizard world, and they never have to deal with muggles. I'm pulling all that out of my ass. I don't actually know. <sighs> I'm sure on the wiki for Harry Potter, they have all this explained in much better terms. All I can think about is that episode of The Simple Life where Paris Hilton asked that little girl if they sold walls at Walmart. Oh, isn't that Neville right there? I'm sorry to interrupt. Uh, right next to Hermione? Yes. There he Which is. Which is little bib. Hide it behind more ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> Keep him out of the frame. <laughs> It does look like they're trying to hide Neville as much as possible. <laughs> Cormac, oh, make he, more sexy faces. Distract he, from Neville. His jaw is changing shape before our very eyes. We can't put an ugly makeup on him and he just absorbs it and becomes more handsome. I have to say, though, every scene with Harry and Ginny is awkward. Some of it's by design and some of it's like, boy, they they, they never felt like they had any chemistry to me. They don't. It's so sad because every they they won the lottery on all these other actors. Everyone else turns out to be perfect and work so well together. And Ginny just doesn't seem like she meshes with Harry. No. But they they get given this giant love angle, and it's like, oh well, all right, we're here. This is how we're doing it. Yeah. And it's it's one of those situations where you would think, oh well. Clearly, they had stuff from the book they didn't pull, but it's exactly the same in the book. There's no reason for Jenny to be Harry's love interest. She's just kind of there. If anything, from what I understand, the movies try a little bit harder to make it work. Yeah, they really do. Plus, it just occurred to me, it's, it's a little bit interesting that Slughorn, the celebrity hunter who is into wizards because they have famous families, gives out a luck potion. Like, the idea of all those being connected. In Slughorn's mind, it's it's better to be lucky and you want a famous family. It's all about happenstance. Individual skill, I think, matters less to him. Although he does invite Hermione in, but he's not that interested in her as a person. Whereas Harry, despite being one of his pupils and trying to get information out of Slughorn, is kind of a representation of the opposite. I love how, uh, with the rotating cast of teachers each one of them with the exception of lupin 
uh, personifies a specific trope of bad teacher. <laughs> and even Lupin was a werewolf. <laughs> yeah, Lupin is metaphorically a sex criminal who has to move from town to town, so that's represented. <laughs> I didn't think of it that way before, but now I no longer like Lupin or his mustache. I do not like Lupin. On the other side, goddamn, thank you, Magic School. Look at the way they prepared that toast and eggs. Why so much toast delicious. and then a single egg? Because it looks fancy as hell. I'd be so happy if someone just randomly made me that meal. Like, the effort was put into this. Look at the that lines. This toast is perfect. Magically so. He also apparently has three hard-boiled eggs, so... All or they're all just the three eggs, and you have to work <laughs> it on yourself. They have magic. They could cook those. There's a raw egg in his cup. He's got three hard-boiled eggs. His plate contains one giant egg. <laughs> Ron, yeah, still you can take all those the, souls. Ron, you can take the fucking helmet off. You're not... And that is the greatest gag of all time. <laughs> He's so nervous, he didn't even eat. This is like the one time we'll ever see Ron in the Great Hall not eating something. <laughs> See, this is where, but to I, me, the actual cinem the cinematography being very subtle and not, like, very slow and and moody really work to enhance something that's funny. I just love that she was there the entire time. Every time it happens, you just then picture her making that, like, 20 minutes earlier and putting it on and then walking through the hall and sitting down. Did you know that Luna actually, after this series was completed, became the Philly fanatic? That's canon. <laughs> She's actually playing Gritty right now. Weird. We're actually watching a real Quidditch scene again. I thought these days were over. In the snow. We still haven't gotten Jason in the snow, but we get Quidditch in the snow. And Ron being a badass. Suddenly you can fly a broom. Yeah. <laughs> Fucking rocking the broomstick like Elvis. Did anybody ever tell him? Do they ever tell him that he didn't actually get I luck? don't think they ever tell him. I don't think in the movie they do. There's a lot of stuff that's never told to Ron throughout this series. His life is a living hell. We'll just assume it happened off screen, because otherwise the next time he played a Quidditch game, he'd be like, well, my luck's run out. Plus, it'd be very nice to know that he was just legitimately good. If I did something good, I'd want people to tell me, like, no, it wasn't magic. You just were good for once. It annoys me we don't have a scene of them of Ron learning that that was just all him because he kind of has earned it at this point. Right? He was legitimately good. He did this all on his own. <laughs> Through the power of belief. And we even get like a, a party. fucking... We get a mirror scene of from Gobble to Fire. <laughs> this is Ron's finest moment in his life. Everything's downhill from here. Jeez, now that you pointed out Neville, I see him lurking in the background of all the scenes. Hey, there he is. I, I don't recognize him. He's too swole. <laughs> Put more sweaters on him. It just, I just love how he's significantly taller than all the other children. They're and all like five foot five, anymore. though, aren't they? Isn't, isn't uh, Radcliffe like five seven or something like that? I think so. Hermione angry. Hey, was this the movie um, 
Radcliffe was a terrible alcoholic on. Yes. Oh yeah, this is why he yeah. can't watch this one. Like he he feels like he just phoned it in the entire movie. Uh, and to be fair, I, I you can tell. Yeah, there's a lot yeah. of scenes where he's just kind of vacantly staring straight ahead. Before, That's why like, something he feels his off line or hit a mark. Yeah, he's he's done better in his performances. To his credit, it still doesn't sink the movie. You don't go away from this one like, man, Radcliffe really gave us a bomb. What a shitty Harry Potter. You can just tell there's something off. And yeah, he can it, even apply that to the theme of the film. He is recovering from his godfather being murdered by wizard Nazis. And, you know, seeing Voldemort come back and the ghost of his parents all within like two years. It kind of ends up sort of working that we're already half we're supposed to be seeing as shell-shocked Harry. It's just the movie ends up kind of feeling like Harry's not there, so it goes a little bit too far because of what's going on behind the scenes there with him. Yeah. It kind of reminds me of Graham Chapman in Monty Python, The Holy Grail, where you know something's going on there, but you'd never think it was he was showing up to work pissed drunk. Yeah. I learned something today. Hmm. Hermione, you're taking this a little too far. Ron is finally happy. It seems a little extreme to attack him. <laughs> they explode, though, so it's fine. Scott, re release the cock, Hermione. It's nice to see for once it's not Ron who fucks up between them. <laughs> like, just, just to infor Ron completely ruins Hermione's date and is just an <laughs> asshole. In this one, Ron's not really doing anything wrong. A girl kissed him, and he had a really good day. And he's like, hey, my friends, what's going on? And then Hermione just launches birds at him. <laughs> it's like, can you guys just have a fucking conversation? The They're together God. all the time. I don't know how they avoid it. Uh, this time, we're outside the window, but there's snow. Also, the camera's doing a neat pan around the building. This is a good Meanwhile. transition. I like this transition. Somewhere out there. That was a really good transition. We get to see all the characters, essentially, like our main folks. We get to see what Draco's skulking around doing. We get a transition of time. Uh, we get more of the geography of the buildings. And then it moves into this. That was a great wonder. Yeah. Ew, And it's Ron. still going. I mean, yeah, we got a digital transition there, so essentially it cuts. But it's presented as one. There we go. We finally cut. Yeah. Watching the progression of Yates uh, through his Potter movies is actually really uh, fascinating. So by the time you get to Deathly Hollows Part 2, it's a very interesting, completely different from where he started style. Yeah. Oh, yeah, he takes Harry Potter in a very different direction. Even, like, the clothes the students wear was modern in the other films, but I feel he pushes it much more in his films, where he wants them to feel like pretty much normal people when they're not dealing with class. When he's out of uniform, Harry's wearing Converse in the last scene. Yeah. yeah. You see, he puts all sorts of little marks on it, and he slowly pushes it each movie. I have a feeling if he had tried to do that maybe in his first film, he would have been kicked out right away. Because the Harry Potter series truly is like a producer series. The director is there to give it their own imprint, but they don't own it. That feels like a dig against Luna that I don't care for. <laughs> Someone cool. Cut to an individualist. 
Hey, no one is cooler than Luna Lovegood. Luna I'm so sorry this is a better match for you, Harry, than... Yeah, I mean, have you always been baffled by them not pairing those two up? I always felt like Luna and Neville should have been a thing. Also, I, I enjoy oh, once again, we start off with the blocking on Harry and Luna, and then we pan over to reveal Draco just skulking around on the side. I, I, I think... really enjoy how the film does that multiple times, where they go from Harry Potter having a pretty wonderful time over to Draco just being unhappy. Oh yeah, I love how Yates uh, transitions between characters, particularly between Harry and Draco. Or even scenes that are Draco adjacent, like the um, Unbreakable Bond scene, is comes from uh, Draco in the newspaper. Like all that stuff's great. Yeah, this is definitely not a movie assembled in the editing room. There are so these are like the best transitions in the entire franchise. Well, the last film, I feel like there are so many like previous sequence that are working around that kind of lack personality. This time, there's big kind of CGI camera swirls and stuff, but they're planned very well to connect with the script. Oh, and there's Neville in his slave uniform. They'll <laughs> oh, whip me the if I don't slug. serve. If only they would present me with clothes. <laughs> I could be a handsome young actor. But going back to my confusion at some of the, the choices, like, why does this scene have to be so, like, why is the set design and the close camera work so oppressive? Like, I don't really feel like that's necessary for the scene. Well, especially a lot of it is really the camera's planted here to show Harry talking to someone behind the curtain. Cormac shows up for a second. Uh, Snape shows up for a second. Is played with all the characters in like just this one blocking. The camera doesn't have to do much or even move. It's interesting compared to how much the camera kind of moves around in other points. I guess that's how they do their comedy. They just make a long take and present it that way. Cormac is also such a weird choice. Like, hey, by the way, here's this other character that no one likes, but he's a pretty boy who's pretty successful. So can we just appreciate the fact that Harry just said dragon balls <laughs> and is now playing with a curtain before trying to escape <laughs> that, that is the smoothest Harry has been this time <laughs> <laughs> oh, super Harry runaway it's a, it's a great comedy reaction by Rickman too though like, he doesn't change his voice he doesn't even change his eyes he just calls him out. He knows. He plays it as such a straight man. It's it's perfect. And he could have easily screwed that up. Like, even a head nod in any way would have lessened the impact of the joke there. <laughs> Nobody exits frame like Alan Rickman. No. Like, it feels like someone clicked on him with a mouse cursor and dragged him off screen. <laughs> Like Hello, Filch is also still alive. Hello. <laughs> to go back to Rickman's comedy and how subtle it is, one of my favorite examples of subtle comedy is in the Thor films, you have the character of Eric Selvig, who is just a super scientist, but he's not really important in any of the movies. He just kind of shows up to spout exposition. 
But every time he does something funny, it really works. And if you study his performance, he's doing everything so carefully. Uh, there's one moment where he like drops a coffee mug. But the way he does it, he slowly releases his grip on it so you don't notice it. And all of a sudden, the glass just falls straight out of his hand. Whereas other characters, if they do that joke, other actors would like obviously just remove their hand from the glass like they're dropping it or throwing it. I love those little subtle touches where it just looks amiss. Like, why did that coffee pot fall out of his hand? <laughs> he didn't drop it. It just decided gravity was too much and the situation forced it to the ground. <laughs> Rickman was one of those guys who knew how to play a moment without making it look like he was playing it. That was also a niche. I keep saying also. Drug me nuts. I'll work on that. But we have the opposite of what we normally see where we start with Draco, and then we pan over to reveal Harry skulking on the sidelines. Like having the reverse there. We've got these foil characters. Might as well connect them with cinematic language. Oh, God. She wants to wear your skin, Ron. Get away. <laughs> this also, has I one have... of the most um, realistic things I've ever seen in the film. This scene right here. Wait for it. He pulls it down. <laughs> he just kind of was looking at it because he's feeling awkward. And then you put it back up between shots. And that is, might be the most realistic thing I've ever seen in a film. You couldn't leave it down. Just, I miss you. <laughs> just open the goddamn door, Lavender, and say hello like a normal person. As I just wanted to say, I love how this movie deals with the exposition on the Unbreakable Vow, which is realizing, oh, we don't have to give exposition for that. It's called the Unbreakable Vow. The audience gets it. <laughs> the way he has to describe it, it's unbreakable. Like, come on, Harry, get your shit together. It's in the name. It's unbreakable. Oh, but what's not unbreakable? Their love. Look at this adorable <laughs> penguin, man. So, I, I'm confused. Is that a, a false thing, or is that a living creature that's forced to skate around that cake forever? Knowing Harry Potter, it's alive. Uh, in my version of the magic world, it's just a plastic toy thing that's been imbued with dance skills. Also, who baked all this? It's magic. They they explain in Fantastic Beast baking is like a two second thing. Oh yeah, I forgot. That angers me. There's an arc. <laughs> God damn it. Well, I'm sure there's a spell you gotta be good at. You know, if you Wingardia Leviasa, it, it just turns into mush. Also, hey Tonks. <laughs> They're looking cool. Oh right. I forgot it was you because you don't have your pink hair anymore. The haircut's weird. Also, I'm concerned that Arthur Weasley is just wearing that pillow over his crotch because he's got a raging heart on. <laughs> it's a little well, creepy. David Thewlis. <laughs> I was about to say. Oh, he's just so He does tired. hold it as he stands up. <laughs> <laughs> Ever since oh, the God. attack at the ministry, it just goes off with no warning. Uh, this awkward scene of Jenny feeding Harry a cookie. It's supposed to be young love. Instead, it comes off like, I don't like these people. They're weird. <laughs> Ron being awkward is less awkward than these two not being awkward. Oh, Ron's <laughs> awkward entrance and sit-down is the greatest thing that's ever happened. And he just sits there holding a batch of cookies, like, hello. Mini pies. Mini pies. She didn't put, he takes a bite and then puts it back and uses the whole thing as his plate. So he's claimed the entire plate of mini pies. <laughs> he knows which one is his. It's touching. 
we've talked about this in the past quite a bit, but the differences between source material and adapted material. And sometimes you can't include everything. Sometimes you have to put new things in. The Harry Potter universe is normally pretty good at staying true to the source material. But this upcoming attack on the Weasley house is such a strange addition. And I know a lot of fans were upset by them just throwing the scene in and not including some of the book stuff. It it bothers me because we get this giant action scene because they felt this should be treated as an action series instead of a Harry Potter film. And that the, the audience needed action reminders every 20 minutes. Besides that, like the Death Eaters attack the house, destroy it, and then run off. Like they don't really make anything of the scene. It has no consequence. It's supposed to remind us that Harry Potter is in danger at all times. But I don't know if we get that sense because they don't actually endanger Harry. They just kind of fuck up his friend's house. I I disagree. I think it's actually a very smart uh, addition, in my opinion. Get wrong. Get off the show. Shut the fuck up. (laughs) I I feel like in like it's one of those things you really don't need in the book, but in a movie you need some kind of very clear and present reminder that the Death Eaters are out there, absolutely fucking things up, and no one is ever safe at any moment except within the walls of Hogwarts. Like I think you really need something to go horribly wrong the second they step outside of the school. I, I'm, I'm going gonna... to go on. I was going to say, and the uh, the Weasley's house is such a character in these movies that, in a way, it kind of feels like a death. And to me, that sells the scene as the house being destroyed because it's it's been such a a pinnacle. See, I um I'm I'm in agreement with you because I was shocked when I found out this isn't in the book. because uh, it feels so um needed for both the pace and structure of the film. And just uh, in for, my mind, if you could totally story, chop ultimately. this thing out and you would never notice it. I think the film would be worse off for it, honestly. I think it would be more meandering. I think this is a good... Um, um, good structural slight into the remainder of the film where things start getting a little... back to being a, uh, much more serious than they were. And the, uh, you know, the, the Death Eater plot kind of kicks back in. And it's always good to have an extra scene or two of Bellatrix, who is kind of shortchanged in the books. But she's just using recycled material. She's got to come up with some new taunts. <laughs> That's her Bellatrix thing, man. I feel like they just she took killed, the audio from the last Did you last kill movie. Sirius Black, Cody? Did you kill Sirius Black? You would know, because I would have to mention it every two movies. Just, <laughs> I killed Sirius Black. She needs at least another verse to this song, alright? We got the chorus. I'm sorry, I like how this is technically a scene from Signs happening. <laughs> God. Can somebody intercut the two? Just Mel Gibson and Joaquin Phoenix fighting a werewolf? Oh! I am insane with anger! Rayback randomly feels like the creeper here. He does, doesn't he? See, this is part of my problem. Harry does a stupid fight. He easily gets blocked. You can tell he's outmatched. Then Fenrir 
kind of flies away. They look like they're being surrounded. But it's just, you know, it's it's nothing. Nothing really happens here. I don't like, know. I always took it they were just kind of more or less just fucking with them. Yeah. Well, that's still a silly thing. If they really wanted to fuck with Harry, they could have killed at least one of the characters. To my mind, just blowing up the house doesn't matter because magic makes it seem like they just repair the house. And even then, don't they have the uh, the wedding at the house, like in the next movie, anyways? I don't believe it's at the house, but I don't uh, think so. I think it's in remember. the backyard of the house. I don't know if they show the house in the movie or not, but I want to say it's at the Weasleys' estate. Well, if they killed off anyone and gone against the books, this would have been a shocking scene. Like, let's say they kill Arthur. Because he's not a major player, but he's still someone we have an emotional attachment to. If they had deviated there, since they're already deviating to add the attack, that'd be a great way to, like, fuck up fans and get people to be like, oh, shit, this is serious. Uh, Percy shows up just to be immediately killed. (laughs) (laughs) He was head boy. He was the best boy in town. Oh, Ron. Ron finally got laid, but at what cost? (laughs) Her eyes rolled over black like a doll's eyes. (laughs) Oh, God, she's riding him. Oh, he's like a fleshy dildo to her. All of Voldemort pensives just look like um, a series of sex devices. They look like the fucking dick ships for Man of Steel. They do. Voldemort, you smug bastard. Young Broadbent. (laughs) Tell me, young Sheldon. (laughs) I love his Nazi haircut. God, this kid just looks evil. You can't trust this kid with any magic, let alone evil magic. To be fair, what kid at Hogwarts doesn't look evil? I love how Yates said that even if that kid wasn't related to Fines, he would have cast him just because of how fucking haunting his eyes are. Let's put some more evil innuendo on my words. These other teachers might misunderstand. Wasn't Yates um, Wasn't Yates not even immediately aware that he was related to Fines? He just picked somebody who looked like Fines and then found out that he was his nephew or something like that? I think so. The visual look of the flashback scenes also kind of gets fucked up because current day scenes tend to have the same look. Yeah. The smoky quality helps, but yeah. Yeah. Everything like looks like a dream in this film, so. Yeah. Why did you if show they, me that garbage memory? If they had just cut the soft focus, I think it would have helped yeah. so much. Yeah. 
Uh, so I'm amazed by Gambon's delivery of that. It is also a lie. <laughs> <laughs> Dumbledore knows lies, and that one's a whopper. <laughs> lies are Dumbledore stuck in trade. I said, God, my ornate cap is off to Gambit in this movie. He gives the fucking performance of a lifetime. Oh, yeah. People get hung up on Goblet of Fire where he runs out and does the whole shouting thing. But in this film, I feel like he's much closer to the Dumbledore we know from the books. Maybe the whimsy isn't quite there as much, but I think even the whimsy of the character and the stories that went along kind of vanished. And we get to know, like, this kind of plotting conspiracy Dumbledore. <laughs> conspiracy Dumbledore. I don't know, conspiracy might not be the right term for it, but he has all these hidden plots that he doesn't just outright tell anyone, but he wants them to play along with, so he has to manipulate them. I, I would say conspiracy is the right word to go with for Dumbledore. People with uh, Gambin always get stuck on the... Like the large, broad emotions that that he brings to brings to Dumbledore, which are really only a very small sliver of his performance. It's all like the little things, like the way he uses his eyes, the way he smiles. It's like it's all the little tiny bits that he puts into Dumbledore that to me make him so good in the role. It's not just like. You know, did you put your name in the Goblet of Fire? It's not just that. I swear to fucking God, Harry, I'll rip your fucking face off and eat it if you put your name in that goblet. Yeah, I, Gambin? I will always give props to Gambin for not doing the expected thing with Dumbledore. Like not just being Gandalf or being Santa Claus. It makes Dumbledore such an interesting mentor figure in these films. That's like the little smile with the magazine earlier. It's like it's little stuff like that. Also, the confusion on <laughs> No one can be indignant like Broadbent. I fucking love it. God, I wish we got more scenes of him and Gambin together. Just two British olds going at each other. <laughs> That's the spin-off series we should have gotten instead of Fantastic Beasts. Distinguished old British men. <laughs> also, something tells me Rupert Grint spends a lot of time sitting in rooms like that. <laughs> I don't like how Rupert Grant got svelte and muscular. <laughs> Take it back, Ron. Take it back. Uh, he's being overly familiar now. <laughs> and Harry's so uncomfortable. I like how these are the best friends in the world, but Ron climbs up into his bed and he's like, oh, fuck, I gotta get out. With his, <laughs> his heart. <laughs> Harry sits in a different bed. Nope, nope, nope. I don't like this. Ron, our relationship is built on distance. We talk once every three weeks for the cameras. <laughs> for the cameras. Ha Harry's only friends with Ron for the optics. I am the chosen one, you know. <laughs> Got to give the folks the Daily Prophet something to look at.
Oh, those love potions. Also, this is, what, the first time the entire school isn't randomly against Harry Potter? But they swung so far to the other side, they're giving him love potions? Look, Hogwarts is working some shit out. Normally there's a giant thing where it's like, everyone hates you, Harry Potter. You go die. And then at the end of the movie, they're like, oh, we were wrong. This time around, everyone's pretty much on Harry's side. It's strange. It's, it's, I like the lack of drama it presents. Thank God. So I feel like Harry gave Ron that potion intentionally to set this up. Uh, after his last interaction with Slughorn, he doesn't seem that scheming. But he literally came and said the same thing the last kid did. Harry's not very good at anything. He's he's very good at straightforward things. He's not really good at deception. I'm surprised he's able to pull off being a corpse in the last movie. I feel like he should have been like looking around every two seconds with his eyes open, like, "Am I selling it, Hagrid? Do they <laughs> like me as a dead body?" Just giggling like he's a little kid playing hide and seek. <laughs> I'm not really dead at all. <laughs> I don't it's strange like... how much slapstick is happening in the background of scenes in this film. It's kind of a new thing for Harry Potter. Normally the jokes are much more forefront. Oh, Ron's coming down. Give him more good stuff. I don't like Jim Broadbent giving young boys wine in the cellar at night. It's Europe. They They drink at a much younger age, right? Pedophilia is pedophilia, Cody. Here, have this Jesus juice. <laughs> wow, what, welcome to 2005. Also, the comedy of this. So now we've got Ron, who's got love and all the anti-luck. Like, he <laughs> accidentally takes the love potion intended for Harry. He accidentally takes the poison intended for Dumbledore, intended for Slughorn. Ron's got to balance himself out. He's got to have some medium love, where he doesn't get snogged all the time, and okay luck, where he doesn't get poisoned all the time. Medium love and okay luck, the Cody Alf story. <laughs> I'll make a mint off of that. Also, goddammit, Slughorn, what were you doing, man? Kid's dying over here. Oh, oh it's Cambridge too busy all over fucked again. up as a chair. Just imagine how dark that scene would have been. He starts chugging the poison wine because he realized he just killed a kid and he can't do anything about it. Take me with you, God! <laughs> <laughs> Wizard God! I don't know what religion's like in the Harry Potter universe, so let's just call him Wizard God. God fucking Weezus. damn it, Dumbledore. A kid nearly died. Do something about that beard. That happens like every day in Hogwarts. <laughs> They send kids to the Forbidden Forest filled with giant evil spiders and killer centaurs for detention. It's not a safe environment for anyone. I enjoy that Slughorn has no qualms about telling Dumbledore that he was just going to re-gift it. I don't know, someone gave me as a gift, so I'm going to give you as a gift. It's my favorite thing Snape does in these, these entire films. 
sniffs an alcoholic beverage in a bag. <laughs> and to go into the intersection of love and luck again. Ron really lucks himself out of this relationship he hates and into the one he wants. Like, he isn't in control of himself right now. He's in a stupor, and he calls for Hermione without realizing that Lavender's there, which causes her to break up with him and Hermione to know, like, yeah, I'm on the fast track to the Ron Express. I love how Snape is here for this entire conversation. (laughs) Looking disgusted? He doesn't do anything. His expression does not change one iota. Whereas Jim Broadbent's like, what the hell am I watching? He's confused by all this. Snape doesn't seem to care for it. Dumbledore's probably getting a hell of a good time, but I can't tell because he's hidden behind Lavender. Snape, like, what? Oh, shit, this is some top-level drama. (sighs) It is vaguely touching, but only vaguely because it's Ron. Goddamn Dumbledore. Oh, to feel love's sting. <laughs> like that time I was fucking wizard Hitler and he killed my sister. I'm gonna go think of that and jerk off. I'll be back. <laughs> it's very strange that in Grindelwald, the crimes of Grindelwald, Fantastic Beasts 2, apparently the two characters do not share a scene. They're building. I guess. It's a very, and, I guess. We haven't seen it yet, so I can't judge. It's just a weird thing to say, like, these guys were lovers, and also one turned out to be the worst wizard ever. Let's not milk that drama. Well, this is what happens when things are overplanned as a series of movies, instead of just, you know, getting to what you're there for immediately. We want the meat and potatoes, and they're giving you spinach. Also, when you want to get credit for just saying something rather than actually doing it. Yeah. The bird I, alone, the Draco. Third, is this like the third time we've gone to Draco's plot? It feels like it's like time 108. This is a very long film. It is weird how uh, Half-Blood Prince has... Like, of all the Harry Potter movies, it has some of the least going on plot-wise. It is one of the longest. Well, I would, I would say the plot is actually pretty stuffed because they give more attention to everyone's side plots. Typically, they don't give a shit what Draco's up to, and he actually has significant screen time. Same with Dumbledore. Normally, like, he's just gone, and then occasionally he'll bump into Harry. This one, it feels like they do their thing more often. Yeah. And then we've got the love story with Ron and Hermione and Lavender. They go into a lot of tangents that would typically be clipped from a Harry Potter story because they're dealing with 900 pages of source material. Oh, uh, that's a Harry Potter staple now, where you go from one element through a window into the indoors. Thanks, Alfonso Caron. You really set the precedent for that. Yeah, you know, uh, (laughs) going back to the length, I mean, a lot of people, this is their, we'll call out this is the best. I disagree with that personally, but to me, it would be, like, the best, or at least right behind Azkaban, if it was just maybe, like, ten minutes shorter. Yeah. It's a little bit of Chef gone. I don't know if Particularly I can put in the second act. I, I think this maybe ranks a little bit lower on the list for me. Then again, I don't hate any of the Harry Potters. 
This one just... I don't love it for some reason. Maybe part of it's look because I feel like just very down when I watch I get this stuck film. On the look, it it makes me feel morose. So I think that's why. <laughs> like if I'm right. watching it actively, I'm I'm enjoying it. But whenever I think back, like Ugh, I do not want to watch Half Blood Prince. Even the comedy bits, like the Quidditch scene, are filmed like it should be a, a very sad slog through Dreamland. It's it's very strange to me. It's like a funeral dirge. Yeah. Oh my god, that girl is going to kill someone with that spoon. <laughs> Please, someone get her help. She just wants to be loved. Give her a wizard therapist who can do spells on her depression. Give her original actress back. Considering <sighs> wizards don't really have doctors for anything, they just have like one all-purpose nurse who can regrow bones. They probably don't have good mental health professionals. Well, no, we magic, this. They can't magic depression away. You've seen St. Mungo's where they just put them in straight jackets. Yeah. That's what the muggles are for, I guess. So we were talking uh, before the show about the cinematography in this movie, about the uh, story Yates told, about uh, he and the DP being told by Warner Brothers to do something about the color grading because the dailies they were getting back, they could not see anything that was going on. I could... It it's makes weird to sense. Say this is the color corrected version. Yeah, if you look at certain scenes, they do seem way brighter. So I think maybe they just kind of cherry pick, like, okay, they're they're at a magic shop. Let's make this look slightly nicer. And this scene can be a little darker. This scene's pretty bad. Like when I was watching it on my TV, Ron's hair looked like it was blonde. Oh, this scene's ugly. Well, it's, everything is so sepia inside of Hogwarts. Like we're watching, oh brother, where art thou? And that works for some movies, like Inside Lewin Davis. That that beat down, hazy gray look is pitch perfect. That is a wonderful fit for that movie. This one, I don't know. I think once magic's involved, unless the entire series is predicated on the idea of let's make magic seem kind of humdrum, I don't know if it fits. It's also, why far. did you go here, Draco? This is the <laughs> bathroom no one uses except for everyone. I can only poop in the secret bathroom. Why wasn't Moaning Myrtle stopping you from crying? I like it when they cry. Draco cries a lot in this movie. He does. To be fair, though, he's being tasked with killing a guy. So It's okay, he's old. (laughs) He does have wizard cancer, but he doesn't know that. Harry, you're in the broken glass! Ah, there's pee down there. This is such a strange thing. They're just determined to murder each other. Like, guys, just walk away. Go report him to a teacher if you think he did the shit. Don't cut him. Don't cut him. That's a good yeah, escalation for every everything that's ever gone on between the two of them for every movie up until this moment. True, they do hate each other's guts. Draco did stomp Harry Potter's face earlier in the film. Although, I think trying to sever all of his arteries at one time was maybe not the best move for our hero. Yeah, I love the shock of this. Maybe, maybe, okay. So, maybe the cinematography was used in the way it is here with color grading, just so it's not violent red all over this character, because that's a little much even for a PG-13 film designed for families. It would be really hard. Yeah, here it doesn't seem so bad. You can tell it's blood, but... 
Also, I fucking love this hero shot of Snape in this scene. Technically, doesn't that get him out of his vow because he helped Draco? <laughs> I'm assuming it's a very specific thing. Like he's got to help Draco in his mission. I guess That's... not dying is probably a big part of helping him on his mission. But the whole unbreakable vow thing is pretty vague. I would say it's the completion of the mission that breaks the vow. God, it would suck if Snape didn't die and he like had to help Draco. I like, could get into a good college, <laughs> <laughs> help him with his marriage. Whenever they, he has a midlife crisis, he's forcing Draco to study his SATs. You cannot get into your uh, brown with those scores, Malfoy. Where's not the brown? brown. Not brown. <laughs> to be fair, yeah, I mean, he's more of a Kavanaugh guy. He's got the background. He should be put into a nice position. Oof. And just be given the best of everything. I'm sure Malfoy is the minister of magic after the last book. <laughs> Someone could teach us. I mean, they do the cursed child or whatever it's called, so they have to explain like what's going they on. They do. Malfoy. I forget what it is though. King I of believe Cursed Child has a lot of Harry and Draco teaming up. Well, I mean, their kids are definitely teaming up, so it makes sense that Harry and Draco do stuff. God, this is such an awkward scene. Come with me to this magic room. Now close your eyes. Now act as if we're robots. Maybe it's Dan's fault because, like, he, he's kind of wooden in general in this performance, and he needs to be very intimate with her uh, Ginny to make this not feel weird. Maybe, but at the same time, nothing against the actress playing Ginny, but she doesn't really feel like she belongs with any of the other actors either. <laughs> yeah. That's what happens when she's not in the series more, and is such a late comer. They don't really have any kind of rapport as actors with any of them. <laughs> It's so awkward. Let me drag this book out of your hand. Now close your eyes. You can't be tempted. It's it's rough. It's they're trying so hard for like a a soft erotic tone, and it just comes off as like these are thirteen year olds who are trying to figure out what French kissing is. I appreciate the effort, but yeah. Meanwhile, if this was Luna, I mean, come on, he has all the chemistry in the world with her. You would almost expect to be silted between those two characters. It's kind of weird, but the way she comes in for this kiss is so weird. <laughs> Hello, I'm back. Goodbye, I'm gone. It seems that you required that it's so, ass. It's so weird. The blocking's so weird. She she just runs in, kisses him, and then slowly backs away. And he opens his eyes, and she's gone. It's so... Oh, it's, I don't I, know what no. they're getting at with that, with the with the positioning of the people inside the frame, but it's so weird. It just makes me laugh. Oh, I swear to God, the first time I watched this, I thought that was a dream sequence. It looks like a comedy scene to me, the way she's in and out. It's one of the things I will legitimately criticize in these films and just say is outright bad. Not like a matter of opinion. I think the whole Ginny romance is tackled incredibly poorly. Oh, yeah. Even in the books, it's like, who fucking cares? Yeah, I don't think you're going to find anybody who disagrees. Yeah. Oh, there we go. Ron sees Harry taking the luck. That's why he's so pissed off. He's just now <laughs> realizing he was lied to. What? Ron's not smart enough to figure that? out that, that that's the same thing. 
I could have been good in the other Quidditch scenes that were left on the cutting room floor. Also, this is Radcliffe's best scene, and he's technically <sighs> supposed to be drunk, so... It makes sense. It really, it works. He works perfectly in this scene. That kind of heightened, like, I have had too much of something. Thing oh, he does. coked up Harry? We don't Look, get comedy Harry that often I drank the series, a lot of things and had some weird stuff in my body. And this is what I imagine it's like. Like, you just kind of buzz through walls. <laughs> yeah, it's weird to look at Radcliffe now and think that dude's been through some shit <laughs> this is Festival Harry and I'm sure Radcliffe has seen some stuff so it all works out oh yeah if you ever want your heart to just fucking go out to Daniel Radcliffe uh, read him talking about his alcoholism during uh, the last couple of movies it's heartbreaking yeah just him drinking alone in his apartment because he doesn't want to embarrass the studio by Harry Potter being drunk in public. It's one of those weird things where he transitioned from, like, Macaulay Culkin into an adult star. Well, adult star sounds wrong, but you go from he a child new actor. With that horse. Yeah, you go from a child actor whose fame will stretch you into being an adult star, and you don't really get that privacy at any point. Like you grow up from 11 years old until you're 20 plus and everyone's watching everything you do. I can't imagine how difficult that would be. I did bad enough when I just had like one or two people paying attention to me in high school. I can't imagine where you have the entire world watching your every step. Yeah. And you cannot hide the fact that you're Harry Potter. So you're not wearing a mask or anything. That character is just your face. You're your own costume. <laughs> Harry Potter being sassy as shit. The amount of attitude Harry develops over these later movies is delightful. <laughs> Fuck your authority, man. Rebel. So Jim Broadbent is going to die on this hill. Don't make Literally, me run, I'm full of potion. <laughs> I'm a large man in the comics. Good. <laughs> I thought the same thing. But oh, nothing hooray, that monster is dead. There's nothing controlling his evil children who only don't eat on the whim of their father. That is true. Good thing Harry Potter leaves Hogwarts, or else he probably would have been devoured by the spider apocalypse. Just gonna call it that was killed by his monster brother. Conspicuously absent in this movie. <laughs> no, there's a lot of things, Hagrid, about spiders we don't like. Dan Radcliffe is probably right. It's the mandibles and the eyes. Why does the luck make him drunk? Uh if you were that lucky you could just say fuck social norms. Yeah, this is know. his ideal personality, technically. I love how this is Hagrid's role in this film. To do the Hagrid thing and weep over an animal. The soliloquy for a spider killer. Why hasn't someone taken the song Ocean Man and made it about potions? <laughs> Potion Man. With the chemical composition of a life form raised in the sun. 
Can we just do that? <clears throat> when we get to the last Harry Potter film, we'll just play that over the entirety of the movie. We don't even do a commentary. I play that at Snape's funeral. You think Snape had a funeral? No, I think they threw him in a hole. <laughs> Not a nice one either. This is a wizard hole. It's twice as bad as a normal non-magic hole. <laughs> oh, so God, whenever I pass on, can Jim Broadbent please give my eulogy? <laughs> After milking me? He does a great job of it. He really does. You know, as mixed as my feelings are on this film, God damn, is this the most artsy Harry Potter ever. It really is. Eh, I might argue three, but this one has definite uh, artistic merit. I get to see we get to see drunken Hagrid in a wake. It's weird. This is the one time we see Hagrid drunk. God, his hands are large. Hmm. And I feel like this and three are two different forms of artsy. Yeah. I suppose. <laughs> I love what a complicated character Slughorn is. <sighs> It'd be very easy for him just to be a self-serving asshole. I appreciate that Rowling gave the character depth and made him more than just a sleaze. And he's the really the only representation we get of why Slytherin is a house in Hogwarts, and why they don't just throw them all out as soon as they're sorted. Yeah, they went heavy on uh, Hogwarts not really needing Slytherin. But in premise, it's not an inherently evil house. It's just a different set of values. Like, hey, cunning is good. What if, you know, we had people that got things done by any means? Sometimes you need that. But in the Harry Potter movies, yeah, they're clearly shown as these guys are just always going to be assholes, no matter what. Even like the Battle of Hogwarts, when all the, uh, in the book, all the students just retreat back to the castle, like none of the Slytherin students help. Meanwhile, uh, get it just... from a lily, your mother. She was also a lily. Get it? Uh... She's Slytherin dead. Slytherin. Boy, Dumbledore should have figured this out sooner. He could just have gotten these guys drunk and got all the secrets. He needed a luck potion. Dumbledore isn't very good at what he does. I do enjoy the irony of characters getting blackout drunk to reveal memories. <laughs> with Hagrid, the which is parades beautiful symmetry with the first film. Hagrid is essentially Andre the Giant, so he should have had a lot more of those bottles of wine to get drunk. Oh, he started long before Harry found him. <laughs> he did actually <laughs> kill that fucking spider. Ran over with his car. For some reason, I can only imagine Hagrid driving like a Ford Model T, <laughs> but it's twice the size of a normal car and it's got monster truck tires. Uh, he's got fucking uh, Crowley's car from Good Omens. He's driving around Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. I was about to say, as much as uh, as Radcliffe is off his game 
in this movie. This is some lovely acting from him in this scene. I really like this. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's good parts to it. It's it's a great moment as well where you just see, okay, Harry actually has really learned a lot from uh, his experiences and what he's been told about his past up until this point. It actually is something he he's gained a great amount of strength from. Well, everyone's playing it on roughly the same level. Radcliffe is doing heavy breathing, but he's not overly emotional where he looks like he's about to weep. And Jim Broadbent's on the level where it looks like he might weep, but he's not actively crying and breaking down. He's kind of reserved. So they, they pair off each other very well. And Hagrid, I think, is just being played by a dummy in this scene because he hasn't talked or moved while they're having their emotional breakthrough. <laughs> it's just a scarecrow. Hagrid left several minutes ago. Hagrid has passed out in the pumpkin patch. The real memories, nor that fake news. As you can see, Slughorn, there is nothing you can possess that I cannot take away. This has been a weird spot to me because it seems like Dumbledore is already aware that it's a Horcrux that they're dealing with. So I'm not sure what this memory is revealing to him so much. I think it's mostly just confirmation. Uh, I know it's gone into a little bit in the books that even for somebody like Dumbledore, a Horcrux is absolutely unheard of. Like, this is the thing no wizard has ever or would ever do. And the number of them, I think, as well. Yeah, I I understand the function, because they're trying to just get Harry up on things and, by extension, the audience. And here's how you explain it. It just seems strange to me that Dumbledore is like, we have to focus on this. This is the one thing I need to know, when he probably already knows it. Well, I think it's a soft spot in the logic of the stories, but I can get why they go with it. It gets us up to speed. Just on rewatches, you kind of, I don't know, I, I end up kind of rolling my eyes. I do also think, uh, getting into the psychology of Dumbledore here, it's very important for him to know 100% for sure what exactly he's dealing with, that it's a horcrux and not 1,001 other forms of magic that Dumbledore, that uh, Voldemort might be using to keep himself alive, especially when he we find out later he's already pretty much killed himself trying to destroy the first one. Yeah. Well, then you get the moment right after this where he's kind of just staring at Harry and going, I'm pretty sure I know where another Horcrux is. <laughs> um, crap. I guess the the number thing is important because he wouldn't have known that. But he also wouldn't have known that he would have mentioned seven in the memory. It was a very odd thing, actually, for Voldemort to mention. Like, what if I picked a random number, like, seven... Oh, is that doable? <laughs> Voldemort has an obsession with seven. Like, he has the seven uh, seashells in his window at the orphanage. The seven That's dwarves he keeps chained in his sex dungeon. <sighs> I, I will say, also, uh, before we pass this, I really don't miss the other, dumb, the older, uh, other Voldemort memories not being in here. 
mainly because I never quite uh, took that much to Voldemort's origin in the books where despite being raised in an orphanage and not knowing his real parents, he's evil and hates muggles because the family he never knew was evil and hated muggles. There's like weird, vaguely eugenic things implied by that. Like Dumbledore goes out of his way to say, oh no, that family line is notorious for being hateful and aggressive. There is a weird fixation in the Harry Potter films on family lines. Maybe that's more of a Europe thing, but boy, I barely know anything about any other family I've ever encountered. Like, I know, like, the kid and the father, and that's essentially it. Like, two generations max. I don't know what their grandparents were like. No one knows what their great-grandparents were like. I just imagine you being interrogated by the police. Look, I know that boy, and I know that boy's dad, and that is it. <laughs> you can't take know. me to prison. I do not know his great-grandfather or his sins. <laughs> <laughs> um, as someone who has um, never read a Harry Potter book, yeah, I follow uh, Voldemort's backstory and motivation just fine, and I think uh, that's really all you need for a film. Yeah. Voldemort isn't one of those characters that are ever like, hey, let's let's really make him a full character. They give him just enough shading for you to kind of get what's going on, but he's a means to the end of telling the story. He's magic Satan. That's, well, how yeah. much do you really need to know? He's just their ultimate bad guy, and they, they flesh him out in s small enough ways where he's not a complete stock version of a bad guy. Yeah. But I don't think they need to waste the time on like making him a fully dimensional character. They've got too many other people to worry about. Especially when you look at the real-life parallels to people like that. It's like, Hitler didn't really have great tragedies in his life. He was kind of just a pissy artist who got lucky. Like, like the absolute worst people in the world, like the the absolute worst. Yeah, usually don't really have motivations or tragic backstories. They're just bad people. <laughs> Some people are just fucking defective. Yeah. Also, we just passed it, but damn, is the um, you need to shave my friend line fucking wonderful. <laughs> it really is. I love that. Like, there's so many little moments like that in Dumbledore asking if Harry has a girlfriend. Like. There's so much pathos from Dumbledore. Dying, ruined hand, Dumbledore in this movie. <laughs> also, God, it weirds me out how much he looks like Ian McKellen in this particular movie. <laughs> I mean, once he comes back as Dumbledore the White, then it's like, oh, I see what they were going for. Those crossover points. I take my strong hand, Harry. I'm never going to be able to unsee that now. <laughs> You're welcome. Just Dumbledore making mashed potatoes with his nasty <laughs> <laughs> And now for something completely different. Also, Dumbledore, why did you go to that rock? You should be much closer to the caves. He just wanted to be dramatic. That's it? Does this look I pitching to you, Harry? I happening right now. The, the soundtrack kicks into, like, full-on epic mode here, and it really sells what's happening. <laughs> I love epic hero Dumbledore so much. <laughs> the beard flowing in the wind as much as it can flow. 
It is funny when Jude Law was cast as Dumbledore. I thought that was the most random thing in the world. But watching this uh, for the commentary, like in shots like that, all I could think is, yeah, yeah, I see it. That's actually perfect casting. It makes sense the more you think about it. Seems like stunt casting at first, but. And they have a very similar profile. Besides, have you seen this horrible thing? It's basically CGI at this point. There's no man left. <laughs> Twisted and goofy. You have no idea how it feels. Do you like beef jerky? Do you want to know, Harry? Oh, sir. But yeah, it's it's such a strange turn here, where we spend 30 minutes getting to the school, a huge chunk in the school, and now, a rarity for Harry Potter films, we're just going to have an elaborate scene set in some totally different place. That's so we random do this Indiana whole scene. Jones adventure. Yeah, we haven't even been introduced to the spot before, so it feels very odd being here. We get a very epic, large scene out of it, though, and then back to the school for the finale. I think it helps make this film feel very full that we have these kind of diversions. Yeah. Yeah, it's weird how this comes across as feeling like one of the more epic Harry Potter movies, despite not a whole lot happening plot-wise. Draco fixes a cabinet. What are you talking about? That's tons of plot. Since we have Nick Cave in the series, I just wonder what it would like if David Yates had just put in some of his contemporaries in weird spots. Like right here, all of a sudden, Tom Waits get behind the mule, just starts blaring. <laughs> you gotta get behind the mule. Yeah. It's just pulling that boat over. Maybe more Smith songs, like anytime Harry experiences heartbreak. Oh, Elvis Costello blaring over the end credits. <laughs> There's a lot of ways they could have taken this. And I do enjoy all the lingering shots of the water, just as tension builders. Dumbledore steps close to the water, and we see a pebble fall in. It tracks that very closely. Right there is Harry stepping out of the boat. We linger on the water. It doesn't show anything yet, but you know it's coming. And the tease that the film does. Okay, I want you guys' opinion on this. So Dumbledore is just fucking with Harry in this scene, right? I assume. No, he's just a horrible, sad grandpa. It's a very sad scene. I should just brought a third same thing kid about with his him. beer. Oh, that's where they bring in uh, Neville. I was thinking that. They bring Neville in like, here, drink this. Why? Just do it. We'll wait. You'll be in the slug club. Don't worry. <sighs> what does being clever have to do with this? 
Well, he was right, so he was more clever. If he had lost that argument, then the clever thing would have been dumb to say. Do you think um, someone was watching this scene and saw Daniel Radcliffe um, force-feeding liquids <laughs> and got hard? I'm sure. I, th- uh, I hadn't, if, hadn't occurred to me, but probably. A fetish was born that is night. In, Someone is into every possible thing, and Daniel Radcliffe is at the nexus of all of it. <laughs> All fetishes serve the Radcliffe. Oh, Camden's like face not, during this scene. If not this scene, then literally any shot of horns. <clears throat> Satan. And there was that horns time he was a strange a one no one talks about. Like, that movie came out, went pretty much straight to video, and everyone just went, no, we don't need to see this. Which is a shame, because it's an interesting film, and I love the source material. Oh, yeah. Radcliffe fucking owns horns. Like, that movie is worth it for him alone. Plus, any movie that includes Sunset Rubdown in their soundtrack gets, like, 50 bonus points for me automatically. Also, and I cannot emphasize this enough, Demon Daniel Radcliffe with a 5 o'clock shadow in jeans. As much as we joke about it, this was a rather heartbreaking scene where you see Dumbledore refusing the liquids and all this stuff. It's like, I, I, many of us probably have experienced like a great grandparent or a grandparent who's had some brush with either like dementia or senility or something like that, and it's it's kind of strikes close to that tone. Yeah, it's very arresting. Yeah, yeah, it brought up a lot of memories. Oh, sweet fucking locket, yeah. <laughs> We're gonna we're gonna pawn this for so much money in cocaine. Oh, the Felix Felicitas. Can you imagine Voldemort having to go to um, a pawn shop to find his lost necklace? <laughs> That's what he's doing in this movie. That's why we don't see him. Harry, just... you dummy! Don't go in the water. He's just per- just perusing eBay like he's a transformer. <laughs> Where are the glasses? You know, it's funny. Voldemort not being in this movie isn't awkward in any way. But it, it's it's amazing. Yeah, but him only being in the third act, even though he's kind of throughout Order of the Phoenix in little ways, but only really being in the third act is awkward. <laughs> I think he's because he keeps the Death alive or something. His presence is around, but yeah, it works much better. Well, this yeah. whole scene feels like an extension of him. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, oh man. Care. Can you pause the commentary? I have to clean my pants. <laughs> that did make me jump a little bit, which is hilarious. Because you know it's coming. I've seen it a hundred times. And they didn't even milk it. Like, Harry leans down, grabs the water, and is immediately grabbed. It's not like there's a long tension to it. Oh, yeah. It works every time. It's so, so I love good. this Bernie... This Bernie Wrightson scene we have here. <laughs> Harry, learn a new spell, goddammit. There I, you go. I, I love how, up until this point, even the monsters of Harry Potter have been fairly whimsical and fantasy-based. We just get a flat-out horror scene with some zombies here. Just tons of weird lake zombies. 
Yeah, I want to see Yates do something with horror. Like more over, he was supposed over, to do an adaption of uh, The Stand at one point, but I think that fell apart. Uh, yeah. Oh, man, could you imagine Yates doing Swamp Thing? Damn, that would actually be really cool. Be a better use of his talents than Fantastic Beasts. Or The Legend of Tarzan. Yeah, let's let's just forget about Tarzan. Yeah, he just had a... I mean, it's like he's doing Fantastic Beasts, so it's not like he's not doing anything huge, but he's had a weird post-Potter career. He just kind of had to circle back around to doing more Potter. Meanwhile, action Dumbledore! This might be the greatest piece of fantasy imagery ever in a film. Yeah, it's pretty goddamn dope. Like, it really... It's hard to top. (laughs) Dumbledore gets two of the best moments in the series back-to-back, essentially, because the, the wizard duel with Voldemort in the last film is astounding, and that little bit of him just whirling the fire all around to kill hundreds of zombies, pretty cool. Also, Draco just it. laying in bed, staring up the ceiling is me every single goddamn night. <sighs> well, maybe if you got that magic cabinet working faster. I'll kill that old man one day. I do love how, for his final appearance, we get to see Dumbledore go full superhero one last time. <laughs> oh, Dudling, everyone go away. Bad magic happening. Pip, pip. I really like this buildup of dread. Yeah. <laughs> Why do you it must cover be such a pain it before you leave every time? It covers it every time it hides his tracks. It must be such a pain in the ass. It's taller than he is. They've got magic. So I love gangster Draco here. <laughs> well, I've done my piece. <laughs> hey, look, it's our two name villains and those other guys. And even one of them is questionable. Get me my Mentos. The Fresh Maker, Harry. The Fresh Maker. It is funny how he's basically saying, Go get the man who kills me. Go. I have to die right now. <laughs> Neither that or Tums. Uh, but we may not have Tums, so just get the man to kill me. It's one <laughs> or the other, Harry. <laughs> I leave the choice entirely in your capable hands, Harry. It really is a Rick and Morty plot when you think about it. <laughs> Harry, Harry, go! Oh, oh, get me the wizard drugs. <laughs> I could see Rick having just a phone number in his pocket of the guy who's allowed to kill him in case <laughs> things get really bad. <laughs> oh boy, I've been waiting for this day for years. Oh boy, here I go killing again. A little hard to tell it's spring, considering it looks pretty dour, but trust me. It's a British spring. (laughs) I know wizard mental health is particularly poor. (laughs) 
Dumbledore! I knew your whole plan the whole time. <sighs> He's like Columbo. I like that little backhanded compliment there. <laughs> also, apparently no one noticed uh, a Draco just wearing long sleeves all year. Oh, my wand. This is an important plot point, though. He's been disarmed by Draco. The most important goddamn thing in the world. <laughs> Do you think Rowling planned that? Or is she just like, oh, I realize I made a continuity oopsie. Let's see if I can work this back into the plot. It could be either or, really. Like, I want to say it's just clever plotting that she did it that way. Like, another one of Dumbledore's long cons. But I also feel like it's probably something she thought of when she got the Deathly Hollows. And she's like, oh, right. I said this before. How do I make that jive? I feel like this was pre-planned. It might have been. I mean, there there was a lot of little hints throughout the series, but then you hear her talk about it afterwards, and she's like, oh, I don't know why I did this or that, and I felt like I had to do this because I mentioned this before. I mean, no one's perfect, and she had, like, thousands of pages of plot to work through, so obviously not all ends will meet. I'm torn. I, I'll give her the benefit of the doubt and just hope she actually intended this from the beginning when she wrote it. I feel like if, like, out of, let's say, ten things, probably, like, four were planned. Yeah. I think it just goes with any writer. Hey, that's impressive by most sure. writer's standards. I mean, look at the Dark Tower series, where every re every book is a re retcon of the previous book. <laughs> yeah, but that's mostly because Stephen King kept forgetting. <laughs> well, that's what happens when it takes, like, 40 years to make a series. But... With this one, they did have the benefit of she was several books ahead as they were making the movies. So she kind of knew, like, okay, let's put this into the movie or change this bit so it lines up better. They did have some hindsight to work off of. I'll say, and I love. Boy, the bombshell in theaters when this happened. For the people who hadn't read the books. Oof. I'll say, I love the small moment of Harry trusting Snape one last time. Yeah. <laughs> and then immediately realizing that was a dumb move. Yeah, I do wish they had found time to include Harry finding out from Slughorn that Snape is the one who sold out his parents to Voldemort. Just to make that last little moment of, of forgiveness sting much more when he kills Dumbledore. I enjoy the interplay between those two actors. Just the quiet defeat attitude from, from Gammon, just please. And Snape's pretty broken, but not in an over-the-top way of doing the Avada Kedavra. It's nice. It all plays together very well. They could have easily gone ham on that and made it seem way, way, way too over-the-top. Yeah, oh, it's fun to watch Rickman in the aftermath, like throughout the rest of the uh, rest of his appearances in this movie. He's playing so the, much on his face. And the eye acting Rickman does, like right now, it's just he still he still has the frozen Snape expression. And That's he, a but, you real, <laughs> <laughs> but you realize at that point, oh, I've never seen him really emote. And this is what Snape emoting looks like. Gone! Plus, we really get to see uh, Radcliffe go off the rails in this moment. He's played kind of numb throughout the film, 
but he gets to unleash here. Yeah, oh, that's a I pretty remember, shot. Yeah, even seeing this in theaters, though, I remember thinking it was frustrating that they just kind of let Harry go. Like, it doesn't sit well with me, considering if any of those other wizards had brought Harry back, Voldemort would have been, like, the happiest dude. I, I don't have a good way fish. He would have been happy. It's the happiest wizard Nazi in the world. It's supervillain logic, though. Next time, Potter, next time. Right, but I never enjoyed that. It, it feels so overplayed at this point. Also, I... the reveal here of the title <laughs> feels so weak. Just, I'm the Half-Blood Prince. It's Remember that named after my book that I wrote. Goodbye. Silver Snape, run away. It's, the mystery aspect has been so reduced in this film, I get why it doesn't work, but oh boy. If ever it was a time to change a title, this might have been the movie. Well, they should have well, it, had the notebook dealt with way later than it actually was. Like, there's yeah. too much of a breadth of story between him getting rid of it and that moment. It just feels like, oh, we didn't say the title of the movie. It just, just do it now. Yeah, it's one of those things that plays a little better in the novel, where it really feels like this book is about Harry and Snape. So you can you can read just read the title of Harry Potter and Professor Snape. When, at that final moment where you realize, oh, this entire movie, what this entire book wasn't really about Voldemort. This was about the betrayal of Snape. Yeah, unfortunately, in the movie Snape has important big things to do, but his screen time is still very minimal. Yeah, that's a weird thing. Going back and paying attention to the series for the commentaries, you realize how little Snape is truly in the films. Yeah, I mean, They're even lucky when they Snape, got someone it, like Rickman who can just make him his presence known in a, a few lines. Yeah, I mean, not to jump ahead, but even when Snape dies, even that scene's rolled over. It goes fast, yeah. And it's just it's uh, very bizarre decisions in regards to Snape in the films. All right. So to compare this to the previous movie, we had a very sad scene where Sirius is dead. Harry is at the. Ministry of Magic, and there, there's that sad beat where he realizes he's going to beat Voldemort by going through his memories and standing by his friends and his memories. It doesn't really affect me. This time around, though, everything is working in concert. The score is very strong. The emotions from all the other actors. It's basically a dialogueless scene, but it's played so well. This gets me. This is This is the emotional highlight of the series to me. Yeah. It's beautiful. It's amazing to see how much Yates progressed between the last film and this one. Just the little details, like seeing Luna cry is fucking heartbreaking. Yeah, maybe some of it is Harry has a lot more people to work off of this time, whereas in the Ministry... It's basically him and Dumbledore, and Dumbledore is not emotionally participating because that wouldn't be his style. So it's all Radcliffe just basically screaming, and the score has to fill in for everyone else. This movie, we get to see dozens of people standing around being real bummed out. Well, the the very know. end of this doesn't betray the tone of a character's death. Like It kind of stays somber, doesn't try to go for a jolly also, ending out of nowhere. That, yeah. 
Well, this one, we've got the mission set. We know the Horcruxes. We know it's the only way to stop Voldemort. Most of his safety lines have been severed. It's up to Harry now, and he's got a task, and he's got a clear set of goals. I'd sit in that chair. What does Dumbledore do in there all day? You don't want to know. Just watches his phoenix die and rebirth itself over and over again. While eating candy. It's a good life. A little bit odd. The wand gets knocked out of uh, Dumbledore's hand. Who brought it back here? Filch. (laughs) Filch for a while was the strongest wizard in the world. I do love how they kept in the detail of him now having a portrait that does nothing. (laughs) Yeah, I know a lot of fans were very disappointed that they didn't include Dumbledore's funeral in this movie. I don't think that was an incorrect choice. Having a funeral here, we already got the emotional beat with the students doing uh, the spell to dispel the dark mark. Do we need a whole funeral on top of that? We've already got the emotional payoff of that scene. We know they're going to bury Dumbledore. It'd be very yeah. weird if all of a sudden they put in like 10 minutes of eulogies now, considering the movie's already like two hours and 20 minutes in or something. I feel like we already got it. Yeah. Plus, this movie's so that, dour that's enough. <laughs> yeah, so that's one of the removals I'm perfectly fine with, and I've never quite understood fans' attachment to that scene being used. I mean, it's not Han Solo. We actually do mourn Dumbledore for the remainder of the movie. God damn it! Harry then breaks all of the wands in the place, overturns like three globes. (laughs) He grabs the last remaining time turner to break it out of anger. (laughs) Yeah, to watch all of these and do the commentary, you realize how often they just end a Harry Potter movie on a very upbeat note after having a very dark last encounter. It's very nice that they finally just went, fuck it, we're going to end this one on the note it should be. It's sad. This is sad now. Harry Potters are sad. I would have loved for them to try to do that with Deathly Hallows Part 1. Just them giggling at the grave of Dobby. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, we're finally rid of him and his stretching. I didn't like Dobby. Ever. I'm burying by hand, so I have the satisfaction. Just reading Dobby's last wish. Oh, no, it involves necrophilia. Ron, I'm sorry, but he named you... Dobby and Cocoa Butter. Why do I feel like Dobby would want you to eat his corpse? <laughs> like that would be his final request. <laughs> Make Dobby useful in death. Have Dobby a drumstick. Must... Dobby must feed Harry Potter. <laughs> so Dobby's ghost nerd. can watch and chub. I think it's the perfect moment to bring up one of my favorite stories about the production of this movie. So Yates and the composer spent months trying to create the most beautiful music in the world for this scene. 
and then admitted that they just gave up at the end and just said, ah, movie score, whatever. <laughs> and I like the honesty there. <laughs> <laughs> it's not just some horns. I don't know. We have another movie to make. And now we get Potion Man. <laughs> Potion, Potion Man. Thank you for coming back, Steve Clovis. <laughs> no one was on the floor. Even the credits for this one feel like they've been designed a little bit more thoroughly. Just like the, the pensive graphics showing up all the different names. There's They're a little cool. more care here, I think, than what we got last time. Oh yeah. Oh, but now upbeat music. We got yeah, somber but the for like all music ten seconds. Waits. <sighs> that's true. That's the important thing. One deal that's always bothered me in an unrelated film, but the prestige ends with a big shocking twist, and then it smashes to a Tom York song. Oh yeah, it does, doesn't and it? I I love that song, and I think it works perfectly for the credits. But it doesn't get to breathe, which drives me batty. Like, it feels like there needs to be, uh, like, 30 seconds of silence before they're all of a sudden just, here's Tom York, enjoy. So sometimes films just don't give enough breathing time before they launch into the last emotion you get as you're walking out of the theater. That's why I fucking love um, Aronofsky's The Wrestler. With just the cut to black, and it just holds there for about, like, 30 seconds with nothing. And then you just, a, a somber sl- song slowly comes up, and then the credits start. <laughs> they should re-edit that one so it immediately cuts to Spoon playing Underdog the second the credits come up. <laughs> no, Ocean Man. Ocean, it's always Ocean Man. Also, n- nothing is more awkward than Mask of the Phantasm. Just <laughs> smash into Tiagra. <laughs> <laughs> there have been some, Timothy Spall. There you go. You got your credit. Uh, there have been some weird ones. Was Spall in this movie? I don't remember seeing him. He, in, just living in Snape's house, he tells him to get out. The second movie in a row, he has no lines. <laughs> I think he, wasn't his name on the poster, though, or something? Yep. <laughs> Going Spall. Good for him. He probably makes residuals for his, like, two seconds of screen time. As we've said before, there is nothing cushier than being a fucking extra in a Harry Potter movie. <laughs> you never have to work a day in your life. I mean, seriously, some of those guys, just, they must have been there for the whole year, but all they are is just in the background. Like, just pretend you're talking to friends. This is a weird thought to have, but... Is it me or the um, Dudman? <laughs> the scrolling credits, Dudman. Wow, that's a fake name. Are the, are the scrolling <laughs> credits in this movie from the nineties? They it feel very nineties. Something about it, yeah, it feels out of place, out of time. Feels like you're watching Mask of Zorro or something. They seem, I don't know, maybe it's like they're they're a little, maybe it's the stream, but like a little extra fuzzy, like they got a glow to them or something. Yeah. They should have put Dumbledore's entire name. Professor Albus Dumbledore. We need a first and a last. We got a horse. Like, yeah, everyone's got a first and last name except for, like, Wormtail. 
Technically, none of these people are professors. Twin girl one, two. No, Professor Flitwick. Our various Tom Riddles. Skinny kid. Eldred Whirple. I forgot Cho Chang was in this movie. She yeah. was? Barely. For a film that's all about love and luck, you think she would have at least had a line. You'd think. They probably had a whole spent two scene movies where... being built up. Yeah, there's probably a whole deleted scene where Dumbledore like crashed in on them as they're making out, and he's like, hmm, I noticed you didn't have any protection, Harry. Let us go on a magical quest to go find condoms at Target. <laughs> For you kids fornicate, why don't you look at my ruined hand? Ooh. <laughs> That's wizard herpes. It can happen to you. Okay, this is the stupidest thing in the world. I just imagine... <laughs> Dumbledore rescuing Harry and Cho with his black hand, like in that scene in Mr. Deeds. Here comes the black hand! Ooh! <laughs> I know it's gross, but it will save you. Give me your other hand. Well, this truly was a half-blood prince. <laughs> to think, we're technically only two films away from the end. <sighs> this terrible burden is about to be re <laughs> relinquished from us. Our unbreakable vow is about to be satisfied. <laughs> well, then we have Fantastic Beast 1. No! We'll, we'll figure that out. <laughs> Do not see! It's a little bit sad. They released like some Fantastic Beast uh, Lego sets. Which by themselves are kind of neat. You get like a suitcase that unfolds and magical monsters that fit inside of it. But I have no interest in collecting it because I just didn't love the movie that much. Yeah. It's like a lot of thought and creativity went into that Lego set and I wish I could support it. It's also a bit of a bummer because they released the Harry Potter minifigure set. But it's not just Harry Potter. A majority of the figures are Harry Potter and they crammed in like four or five Fantastic Beast characters into the same set. So buy a blind bag, open it up, be like, oh, sweet, I got Neville. Let's put that figure on display. Next up, <laughs> god damn it, it's one of the Fantastic Beast characters. You don't fit in with all my other stuff. You're in the wrong timeline. Get out of here. And what characters okay. they are. Two things about that. One, I love how you just say Fantastic Beast characters, because nobody knows their names. Two, Newt. That's uh, the Trini? Trini? Teeny? Queenie. Queenie, Teeny. that was it. Queenie. 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 There we go. Okay, Dan Fogler. <laughs> Dan Fogler. That's all and of them. Those are all the characters and uh, not Johnny Depp. We have that as well. And two, I love how that's the Lego equivalent of like Stan Lee trying to shove the thing into the Batmobile. <laughs> J.K. Rowling, you ruined my Harry Potter. Ruined it. Or made it better. <laughs> it's funny to me that Lego Harry Potter knows what it's about, really, but they're being dragged along because there's a new Fantastic Beast. Let's put it this way. Uh, for the release of the new Fantastic Beast, they released one Lego set, plus the, the suitcase, which is supposed to be from the first Fantastic Beast. For the second one, it's just one cheapo set that has a carriage 
and like two wizards. On the other hand, just for the hell of it, apparently, they're releasing a shit ton of Harry Potter specific sets. There's the Great Hall, there's the Whomping Willow, there's a set with uh, the giant spider, there's a micro figure set of the Hogwarts Castle that's like $400, and there's more to come. There's the Hogwarts Express. They just kept pumping Harry Potter sets out, and everyone was like, that's good, keep those coming. But you don't have to do any more Fantastic Beasts, it's fine. Which is a shame. What if there's a really cool scene in Fantastic Beasts 2? We won't know because we're stuck with just one carriage set. Hey, Jeremy. Yeah. So what, what, what place in your head do you go to when Cody starts talking about Legos? Amazon.com. <laughs> <laughs> I was go just thinking, buy some Legos. I was just thinking about other podcasts I like. Yeah, Aaron Makey has some good ones now. A lot of good good ones. Expanding. Uh, speaking of lore, season two this month, I'm very excited. Yeah, don't promote yeah. other shows. It's all about us. <laughs> well, Cody, hey. here's your chance. That's your segue. Promote they have box their own office marketing departments. Ting. They know where we're at. They know how to find us. Audience, do you know how to find us? We're Box Office Pulp. You type that into your browser, you'll find us somewhere. Go to Stitcher, go to Blogspot, go to Facebook, go to Twitter. It's not hard. Come on, guys. You know the drill. Go find us. I mean, if they're listening to this right now, they found us already. The hard part's over. Exactly. What? what? You can't find the rest of our stuff? This is a challenge at this point. Come on. You know better, audience. You can do it. I believe in you. To be fair, you don't know if someone, like, ripped this to a little thumb drive, put it in a bottle, and threw it in the ocean. Someone found this somewhere on some random island. Did I tell you about my Tuesday hobby? It's that. That's what I do. I go to the ocean, and I throw our podcast into it. More to punish fish than to get people to listen to it. Please please do this. I like to think that this podcast is our own personal Half-Blood Prince. Like, a student is just going to find this podcast not knowing it's from us. A student that is now our greatest enemy. I'm box office pulp guy. Dun, 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 dun. That's it. This has all been an elaborate prequel to us just doing our own elaborate prequel to the origins of 80s guy. This is part one of nine. Congratulations. You're in it for the long run now. That's a character from a different podcast, Cody. It's all our show. We're taking over. Your conviction. Uh, unfortunately, Cody will not be played by Con Farrell for the remainder of the series. I was hoping to be played by Con. Don't we all? Anyways, I already told you how to find our stuff, so uh, all that's left is uh, to get the hell out of here. You get more out of life when you go out to a movie. Please remember to replace the speaker on the post when you leave the theater. That was a really gross hand Dumbledore had. It was pretty grody. The worst part was, if he just used some magic soap, it would have been fine. It ever occurred to him just to wash it? (laughs) No, they don't have washing in the wizard world. (laughs) It's like the idea of him walking out of the shower and being like, Oh, goodness gracious me. Have we seen a proper shower in the wizard world? No, they don't shower. I I think they just magic the dirt away. 
I bet it feels huge in this hand. <laughs> oh no, I rubbed the flesh off. <laughs> the new horror film from Dumbledore. <clears throat> I mean, if that was a horror film, I'd watch it. I rubbed the flesh off. <laughs> from Hammer. This is Box Office Pulp Guy, and this has been a Pulp Podcast production. Now please, 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 put a gun in my mouth and pull the trigger and say goodnight. And now, on with the show. There are a lot of issues that plague the comic book community at large that are really never kind of addressed. I think what the three of us really wanted to do was do a show where we explore all of that. And by the very hand of Odin himself, we now have <laughs> the seed of this podcast. Marvel's Odin. Does DC have an Odin? They must. I don't, th- I don't think so. Let's go with, like, image Odin. Look, look, DC has Hercules, so he has to have something. Who doesn't have Hercules? Spawn. He has Angela, who's like Lady Hercules. Yeah, she is kind of Hercules-like. Can we still yeah. legally say Spawn has Angela? Have I just gotten us in trouble? Well, now that she's as Guardian, I think it's it's fair play. So. Hey, she's not technically as Guardian. Yeah, but she's Asgard's assassin. And she has like a weird new haircut. Have you seen Angela's new redesign? Look, we can get all into the pathos of Angela on another episode. That was just a little taste of graphic novelism. <laughs> 